Okay, we are live. Welcome everybody. We have with us Alexander Mercurus in an undisclosed location. And we have with us the great Robert Bards, a man who is batting 1,000 lately. Robert, you called the TikTok thing, that whole TikTok charade, you called that. You got DeSantis right. And this evening, we are going to talk about Trump and a whole lot of other news, which yeah. uh, which which we have got to get to because we have got yeah. a lot of topics to go over. So before I pass it over to you, Alexander, and to you, Robert, a hello to our moderators, the Duran.locals.com. And Robert, where can people find you? You have the best locals page that I know of. Uh, yeah, well, well, pretty close to the Duran.locals.com, uh, where you can watch this live now because it has live streaming capacity at Locals, which is good to see. Uh, but uh, for all the content, VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com, great community. Uh, they often share the, the key links and stories each day that I find. I don't have to go out searching for them. They find them instead. A very active community. We have some hush-hushes on there. The, you know, our first ever hush-hush was about an alternative theory of January 6th, about a week after it happened, which was that we'll likely find a bunch of infiltrators and informants involved in what looked like aspects, at least, of a false flag operation. Mm -hmm. And, of course, today it came out that there's at least 40 more informants they hadn't disclosed uh, in the January 6th cases. They had DHS employees, uh, local cop employees, local other – I mean, everybody, FBI, they had informants everywhere. In fact – you have to wonder how many non-informants were involved in the raid uh, on the Capitol, the riot on the Capitol. Uh, but so all that content you can find at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. And I will have a link to vivabarnslaw.locals.com in the description box down below, as well as a pinned comment. Once again, thank you to our moderators, Val Yes, Allison Blunderland. Who else is moderating? I will be moderating as well. I think I saw Zarael in the house. And Alan Watson was somewhere in the house. And I hear Alexander's dogs are in the house. Alexander, Robert, do we have any news to talk about? Is there anything going on in the world? I, I, I think we're living in absolutely momentous times. I, I uh, Times which I just would never have imagined ever living in. Now, Robert, you've done a brilliant program already um, uh, on Viva, Viva Frey about the indictment of Donald Trump. I've read the indictment of Donald Trump. I think you did that program just before the indictment was published. I I've read indictments. I read lots of indictments in my time. I was never a criminal lawyer, by the way, but, you know, we had to deal with appeals from them in the Royal Courts of Justice. So I've read them. Uh, I read this thing and I said to myself, this reminds me of student jokes. When I, <laughs> law students in my day, they used to sort of come up with crazy, silly indictments. Indictments which just are totally ridiculous. This isn't, this is exactly like that, except it isn't. It's supposed to be for real. I, I just could not believe it. You have to have some knowledge of law and experience of law to, to understand how crazy this thing is. I mean, 
how can you prosecute the same thing 34 times? And when we are trying to prosecute that same thing for 34 times, there isn't actually, you're not actually prosecuting any anything because, I mean, I, I cannot see what the crime that is being alleged is. I mean, I really can't. You're supposed to falsify something. As far as I can understand it, it's the crime is that you're treating something as a legal expense instead of a business expense. That 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 basically is what it seems to come to. I mean, I, I mean that I, I mean I mean I may be getting it wrong. Maybe there's something that I'm missing here. But and it's all been done in a way that is supposed to get around the limitation issues, which I'm not really very clear about in, in New York. It's trying to litigate something which this particular court and this prosecutor doesn't actually have any jurisdiction over because it they're trying to create some kind of jurisdiction in their own district in New York, in their own state in New York, over what is clearly a federal offence. And the, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. It alleges that they can do that because of a connection to some other dark and terrible crime. But we're never told what this dark and terrible crime is. I mean, yeah, what kind of indictment is this? I mean, you know, and you know, it, it's so crazy, it's so nuts that you know, I'm actually frightened. I, I'm not going to pretend about this, Robert. I mean, you know, that the state of New York. Oh, you're going to tell us all about Manhattan and what goes on there and the way it works there. But the the state of New York, which you know the commercial courts there you know we took very seriously in london for obvious reasons that the state of new york could entertain this nonsense i mean it's just it's just mind-boggling it's just incredible and that the man who's brought it the attorney who brought it apparently campaigned and got elected on the basis that he would do it that he would actually bring a proceedings against Donald Trump. So he's actually advertised the fact in advance that this is a political prosecution. <laughs> Where are we? What kind of a world are we in? As I said, it is so ridiculous. It is so absurd that I'm actually I'm actually worried because when I see things like this happen, when things as crazy as this happen, clearly there's some kind of agenda involved. Clearly, there's more than just the people who we are seeing involved, or at least so it must seem to me. And um, it does make me wonder whether um, the whole thing is going to be rigged and tied up in some crazy kind of way, that we end up with some sort of lunatic judgment, and that the whole of, the whole purpose of this is to stop Donald Trump standing for the presidency next year. Um, because, to be honest, the stakes now are incredibly high. If this case against him is dismissed, I would have thought that, well, he may not be unstoppable, but the momentum that he would get would be enormous so that they're going to have to do things to try to to try to make this stick. And this is a terrible place in which the United States has been brought to. It's a terrible place in which New York, a city I know, by the way, has been brought has brought itself to. And you know, I, I'm I'm worried. Anyway, Robert, tell us what you think. 
Yeah, we definitely have interesting topics because we have the Trump indictment, all the implications of that politically and legally in the United States and globally. We uh, we have, of course, the, the crypto wars that are going on. We have the euro dollar system and how it's impairing the ability of both the United States and the world to replace it in some meaningful manner or govern it in some meaningful manner. Um, we have Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, you know, re- reclaiming his family's mantle uh, to run against the deep state for president of the United States. Uh, and, you know, the and, and we have Ukraine and all the other issues which are really lurking behind the Trump indictment. It was Trump's dissident politics on war in particular that uh, and, and this was just being a skeptic of war. I mean, he, you know, despite efforts, he didn't pull us fully out of Afghanistan, thought he had pulled us out, but hadn't out of Syria. Uh, but, you know, was still, you know, didn't pull uh, didn't push peace in Yemen as much as he could have. Wasn't able to get a deal done in North Korea. But just for being a little bit of a dissident on deep state policies, he has been targeted ever since, uh, much as Robert Kennedy's father and uncle became targets when they were dissidents. Uh, and targeted in more hostile ways, even than President Trump has been. But we, you know, we shipped our arms off to Ukraine, and now it looks like you know where they've used them to, you know, carpet bomb kids for the better part of a decade, uh, all the way back to 2014. Staged the coup that we bragged about, but now pretend we had no involvement in, and never happened. Uh, if you listen to Konstantin Kissin and other people, uh, well, what, what coup? There was no coup. It was a popular revolt. You know, just go back and listen to John McCain bragging about it on world TV at the time. Uh, and now we're, you know, and now they're, you know, they're busy burning churches in Ukraine. Uh, that, that, that's that's the magical democracy we've promoted over there. We promoted a documentary film of Navalny. We gave it uh, the Oscar, uh, you know, on Navalny, uh, the Lyndon LaRouche of Russian politics that we're pretending is the Lech Walesa of Russia. Uh, the and, and that guy. And what does that guy do? Help make the film. The Bellingcat guy. He goes on and brags about how the U.S. or others, or Ukraine, whoever it is, uh, is you know terrorist bombing cafes in in St. Petersburg and yeah. killing bloggers. Uh, we live in interesting times. It looks like we exported our arms to Ukraine to only import Ukrainian politics back to America. Yeah. In the case of this Trump indictment, yeah. first uh, from a geopolitical perspective, in the United States, like around the world, some people are more accustomed to this. You know, if you're in Israel, Netanyahu has gone back and forth with the court system so much he tried to reform the court system, but, you know, was indicted on and off. Chirac in France, the 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 old joke was he was trying to stay prime minister as long as or president as long as he could so that he wouldn't have to face criminal charges from his days in Paris. So in other parts of the world, this is either commonplace as part of their everyday politics or it's what we in America affiliate associate with banana republics and totalitarian dictatorships. It's what we accused Russia of doing with Navalny said, oh, my goodness, they're locking up a lead political opponent, uh, ignoring the fact he wasn't a lead political opponent. And he actually committed the real crimes because he'd been a scam artist in Russia for the better part of a decade. Uh, you know, different parts at different times, what scam he was running. Um, but here we are the United States of America. We have just indicted the former president of the United States and the leading opponent of the existing party in power, both in New York and at, in the White House. That has never happened in the quarter century history of the United States of America's existence. So uh, we have crossed a Rubicon that we had always refused to cross before. Now, they had shown increasing signs of their willingness and readiness to cross it in the Mar-a-Lago raid, as we discussed at the time. I remember what we discussed then was the great worry was that this power, the people in power, had no respect for limits, limits of any kind. Uh, that, you know, blowing up Nord Stream was an example of that. Just no limits of, well, maybe we shouldn't engage in massive global terrorism against our own ally. 
maybe it's a bad idea. Uh, maybe we won't get away with it by blaming, you know, some random boat out in the middle of the water that can't even perform it, you know, well, like the CIA tried to after, the, you know, uh, Seymour Hersh outed them. Um, you know, when you have a mindset of people who think that Ukraine war can somehow come out good, the mindset of people who think maybe thermonuclear war with two nuclear powers would be a good idea. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe we'll add a third while we're at it uh, in terms of trying to escalate martial military conflict with China. When we had the Speaker of the House running over to, to Taiwan yesterday in, in a politically needless thing that Trump himself has also been critical of. Trump has said, you know, there's no reason to go that route. You know, our, our conflict with China concerns economic, concerns jobs. Uh, America, China has an advantage in the manufacturing sector. He doesn't blame that on China. He blames that on the United States. He goes, he wants to change that. That was part of his trade policy with China. People can agree or disagree with it, but it's not a martial military war conflict. That's not what Trump has ever called for. Called for de-escalation on Taiwan, de-escalation with North Korea, tried to get a peace deal done with North Korea, blown up by John Bolton. But it's because of Trump being a dissident at all, second guessing ever, uh, neocon, neoliberal, deep state, establishment, military, industrial complex policies in the United States. That is why he has become the target. Um, he must be one of the most innocent real estate dealers in the history of the New York City, because this is a guy that's been under macroscopic, microscopic inquiry by every political and legal authority known to man. Uh, Mueller did a full body financial cavity audit on, on him. Uh, the, now the, the Southern District of New York did it. The state of New York did it. The New York City District Attorney did it. Uh, the, the U.S. Department of Justice continues to do it. And all they come up with is that a Trump organization within its ledger in 2017 said that they paid Michael Cohen for legal services a certain amount of money. And that's what's being called the big crunch. It's it's in their own internal documents. These are documents that were not shared with anybody externally. So this wasn't part of an audit. This wasn't a submission to the government. This wasn't on the SEC. The, the, nothing public. This is in their own internal book ledger. They said, paid Michael Cohen X amount legal services. And they're somehow saying that's a big crime. They cannot find another example in the history of New York where anyone has been prosecuted on these grounds. They cannot find another example in the United States of America where anyone has been prosecuted on these grounds. So let's uh, so other than the political fact that we've crossed the Rubicon and in indicting a leading political opponent, which we'd never done before, indicting a former president, which we'd never done before. And as I'll get into, there's constitutional reasons to believe we can't and shouldn't without impeachment first as a prere prerequisite once someone has been president. Uh, but putting that, uh, that, that dangerous Rubicon aside, the second one is the legal nature of the charges are absurd. So the, they won't say what the underlying crime is. The, the crime he's been charged with is just a misdemeanor, but they're calling it a felony. So in order for it to be a felony, you have to have entered a false record in a, a business ledger, number one, and you have to have done so with the intent to defraud somebody else. They don't explain who that is. And then in order for that to be a felony, you have to have entered the uh, ledger item falsely, knowingly falsely. Number one, willfully falsely. Number two, you have to have done so knowingly and willfully to intend to defraud. That willfully has special meaning in American criminal law, which I'll get to, because it applies to the federal law they're charging, and that, that thus borrows to the others. And third, they have to allege it was done to cover up the com uh, commission of another crime. In this case, it appears, but they're not saying, and there's, I'll get into why they're not saying, but the, the, it appears that their logic is 
that he violated federal election law in the United States. That federal election law requires willfulness, which means not only that you know you're, what you're doing is factually what you're doing, but you and acting with certain intent to do so. It also means you have to know the law prohibits it. Uh, so this is unique in the area of law I do a lot of work in, which is tax law in America. In tax law in America, because of our unique history, we don't want to lock people up for debt or dissent to the government because dissent over tax debt and the meaning of tax laws is why the America, United States of America exists, uh, You know, going all the way back to the Stamp Act and the rest, disagreements over what was the legal authority of parliament to pass. So uh, our tax laws require willfulness, and this willfulness has been applied to the federal campaign finance laws and thus applies to these New York crimes because they're an element of the underlying charge in this case. Uh, and so in that case, they, you have to know that you're also violating the law, which means you have to know what the law is. Like normally, if you if you run a red light and you get pulled over by a cop, you can't say, oh, I didn't know that there was a law that prohibited me running a red light. That That's not a defense. All you have to know is the light was red and you ran it. In willfulness, you do. Uh, and you have other defenses, what's called a reliance defense, what's called a good faith defense. What that means is if a lawyer told you what you're doing was right, you're, you're, you have a complete defense. If you simply thought different, you interpreted the law wrong, but it was a good faith interpretation of the law, also a complete defense. So in order to charge the election law component, which appears to be their linchpin to elevating this misdemeanor to a felony, but not only that, it's their linchpins to even allege the misdemeanor took place. Because I think this is problematic in New York law, but New York law has some provisions that say you can prove intent to defraud by proving you intended to violate a federal uh, a felony and commit a felony, that they can consider that a form of intent to defraud, a specie of it. <coughs> that doesn't make sense. That should be a separate element, and that will probably be litigated. But what that means is their only proof that he even committed the misdemeanor, well, because he never disclosed these documents to third parties is that it was an intent to violate federal election law. So they have to prove it to even get conviction on the misdemeanor, not less the felony. And that requires, again, that he know what the law is, that nobody had have advised him contra, that he have no good faith interpretation of it different than them uh, to prove it. Now let's go to the federal election law that they're alleging is violated here. They're alleging that all of this is a lie because the fee, the money was not for legal services. It was instead to reimburse a... Uh, illegal contribution in the 2016 campaign. So what happened is Cohen paid uh, the extortionist lawyers working on behalf of Stormy Daniels. By the way, their reputation is connected to extortion. Stormy Daniels' future lawyer, Michael Avenatti, is in federal prison currently for what? Extortion. And she's been ordered by the federal courts to pay close to half a million dollars to Trump for bringing a bogus claim against him. She herself has publicly said, by the way, she never had an affair with Trump. She's, she said different things at different times, depending on what day it is. Uh, she was out taking pot shots at Trump the other day. And, you know, I and a few other folks reminded her she needs to keep working because she's got a half a million dollar debt to Trump to pay. So uh, that, that's a lot of singles. That's all I got to say. The uh, uh, And she's getting up there a little bit in age. So that's I mean, that's what the underlying claim is. In order to prove this federal criminal law claim, they need to prove that Trump knew that federal election law prohibited him from reimbursing Cohen. That Trump knew that uh, that the uh, federal election law uh, made it a crime for him to reimburse Cohen, and that it wasn't for legal services but was for a campaign contribution. And for to prove all of that, they need to prove that the purpose of the payment to Stormy Daniels 
was solely to influence the 2016 election. Now, they have a bit of a factual problem. All the allegations against Trump are from 2017. How was anything he doing in 2017 to influence the 2016 election that already happened? So they've got to go through. This is why they're staying vague. They want to change their theory as they go along, just in case they get nailed on one. They can go over here and then go over here and then go over here. Itself a constitutional violation of the right to fair notice under the due process clause and the nature of the indictment, which can lead to a request for a bill of particulars, but should should be grounds to dismiss the indictment itself. It's also a violation of the grand jury clause. If the grand jury didn't know what they were indicting you on because they were misinstructed on the law, that is a violation of the impartiality and independence of the grand jury, which is grounds to dismiss under both New York State constitutional law and the United States Constitution, which is enforceable through the 14th Amendment against the states, the right to an impartial grand jury in particular, because it's so critical, essential, and fundamental to our due process in America. Now, it's been gutted and eviscerated, but, uh, you know, the as I pointed out, you know, the, and others have said many years ago, a federal judge said a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich if a prosecutor asked them to. But this uh, this ham sandwich of indictment against Trump doesn't even have a ham in it. It's just got a couple of pieces of bread. So that's how weak it is. So in order to get this indictment through, they, in order to get uh, to get past motions to dismiss and even order to get to a jury and then to convict beyond a reasonable doubt, they have to prove that Trump knew that this was a political campaign contribution uh, in violation of the law. Now, here's their problem. The first part of the indictment says that Trump was planning this all along and that he was really the one paying off Stormy Daniels and that he was just using Michael Cohen as his conduit. Well, then he didn't violate federal election law. Because uh, the under the U.S. Supreme Court has had multiple cases, first Buckley, then Citizens United, where they came in and restricted the meaning of campaign finance law. They said, look, if, if you can, under the guise of campaign finance, limit someone's speech, limit someone's press, limit someone's free association, limit someone's right to petition the government, then you can effectively negate these constitutional protections under campaign finance laws and campaign integrity. And so the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that outside of very limited circumstances. The only thing campaign finance laws that can constitutionally reach is they can say if a third party is trying to engage in quid pro quo corruption or could be thought of doing so through the form of a contribution to their campaign, then that has to be disclosed and there can be limits imposed upon it. But they emphasized a person spending their own money on a campaign doesn't implicate that. There's no third party corruption of you spending your own money. So they said constitutionally, you can't be limited in spending your own money. That means the campaign finance laws do not apply to Trump spending his own money, even if it was for the purpose of the campaign. So a key problem with the indictment is it alleges this was all about Trump trying to influence the election and him organizing and orchestrating this. They need to allege that in order to allege that the later acts were somehow part of an earlier crime because of the timing problem. Problem with that is Trump, that's not a crime. Trump can spend as much money as he wants to influence his own election. He always could. So when you have so they don't have a, a crime under federal law, if that's the case. So the alternative is that Michael Cohen made this campaign contribution that Trump did not know about it. Trump was not aware of it. Trump wasn't trying to influence an election and then later was paying Cohen back uh, as, as to pay back to cover up Cohen's criminal activities of making an illegal contribution. 
The problem with that theory, aside from their timing and the explicit statements they make in the indictment that it was not, that's not what happened. Even if they try to change the facts of the indictment to fit a new shifting theory of criminal liability, is that federal, for the same constitutional reasons, you have to prove that the person made a contribution. Because here, there was no direct contribution. So they're trying to say this indirect activity constituted a direct contribution. In order to that the payment to Stormy Daniels was really a payment to the Trump campaign. In order to prove that, the law says it must be for the purpose of influencing a federal election. Not a purpose, not an purpose, not any purpose, the purpose. And the reason they have that law as the purpose is because of all these constitutional provisions of First Amendment protection limiting the scope of campaign finance laws. Not only that, the rule in the criminal proceeding context, you have the rule of lenity and the rule of fair notice. The rule of lenity holds under American constitutional law has become a due process right. It's enforced in other jurisdictions as part of the common law of criminal jurisprudence in common law countries, sometimes as part of the civil law and other in other civil law jurisdictions. But what the rule of lenity is all about is I, as a defendant, it, all the laws will be interpreted in my favor, that they will and be strictly interpreted against the interest of the state. So that if there's any interpretation of any law that says what I did did not was not criminal then the rule of lenity requires that be the interpretation, if at all uh, achievable or attainable. In addition, the rule of due process says in America, you can't be criminally prosecuted for something you weren't on fair notice was a crime at the time you engaged in the, engaged in the underlying act. Here in this context, that means Trump had to know that his entry on a, on a, on a, a ledger there's also an issue, by the way, of whether Trump was the one who did it. They have a problem there, too. Apparently, they have no emails or documents proving Trump did it. Trump isn't the one who actually made the entry. Trump had turned over all that power to other people as soon as he was president. All these actions were while he was president, which has its own ramifications constitutionally. Uh, so there's that issue. But putting that separately aside, for under the fair notice requirement, Trump had to know at the time that entry was made that that was a crime. If he didn't, uh, uh, then, then he can't be criminally prosecuted under the due process clause. Then you have the selective prosecution principles. The United States, while the courts have been terrible at enforcing it, the, has a provision that says if you are targeted for political reasons and, and if you are basically being prosecuted in punishment of your First Amendment activities, your campaign activities, your petitioning activities, your speech, your press, uh, your religion, uh, or in other cases, uh, other circumstances could apply to certain uh, racial or uh, gender discrimination cases, but especially it's mostly common in the political context. If your political opponent is targeting you for political reasons, then that is a misuse and abuse of the prosecutorial power and requires its own dismissal under selective prosecution. Here you have the prosecutor admitting when he campaigned, he was out to get Trump. That before he knew anything about any case, he said, I'm going to find an excuse to, to, to indict Trump. Uh, the New York Attorney General did the same. Democrats have been doing the same across the country. Many of his associates at the New York DA's office did the same. I mean, this is the New York DA's office that was made famous as the beacon of prosecutorial integrity by shows like Law and Order that are based on the famous Robert Morgenthau, who long ran the New York District Attorney's office. We're a long ways away from the days of Robert Morgenthau. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is someone whose wife was bragging to everybody uh, that, that they were going, that her husband was going to, quote, get Trump. Uh, and this was before they knew criminal charges even existed. There is no more compelling case of impermissible selective prosecution than this indictment of President Trump. 
Uh, and if, if it's not enforced here, then it's just dead letter law in America. So he has unique. And then the last constitutional grounds he has to challenge. Well, I should say there's two more. One will depend on what happened in front of the grand jury. You're not allowed to mislead the grand jury about the law. You're not allowed to suborn perjured testimony in front of the grand jury. Under U.S. Supreme Court law, unfortunately, which Trump may challenge here, you are allowed to hide evidence that proves a person's innocent from a grand jury. I've disagreed with that Supreme Court decision, but that ship has sailed temporarily. But he could preserve that. They, it's clear they did that. It's clear they hid evidence that was in his favor. But the other things they probably did, which are still impermissible and grounds for dismissal, is they likely lied to the grand jury about the nature of New York law. That's evident in the fact that the grand jury didn't even decide what crime he committed to elevate this to a felony or make it intent to defraud in the first place. I mean, I've never seen an indictment that missed that. How in the world? Uh, it should be dismissed facially. An honest judge would have dismissed this case as soon as he saw the indictment, said this is insufficient. You know, you go back to the grand jury, get a different one, but this is done. Um, the, you know, so it has that defect you know, from the beginning. But in addition, you can't suborn perjury or put perjured testimony. It's almost a guarantee they did it with Michael Cohen because Michael Cohen has contradicted himself on this precise issue publicly for years. So he has said at different times he had different reasons to do this. And this goes back to the other statutory problem they have. The real reason by Cohen's own previous words that he made this payment was first he did do it for legal services. He, his job was to be the fix-it man, as he saw it, for Trump. He fixed Trump's problems, and then Trump reimbursed him for fixing those problems. That is, as Michael Tracy has noted, he was on with Glenn Greenwald saying, isn't this legal services? You're paying a lawyer to perform a particular service. Sounds like legal services to me, which means, of course, even if all the other stuff was true against Trump, there wasn't any false entry in the first place. There's no false entry in the books if, in fact, the money was paid for legal services, even if it had additional purposes behind it. Right. You, you, you don't have to put in there legal services to do to get an NDA done, legal services to be the fix it man, legal services to do a deposition. You can just say in the books legal services. And there's no question that's exactly what Cohen did by his own words and by his own admission. And according to his own invoices, he submitted to them for reimbursement and repayment, which was the pre, uh, prerequisite for payment being listed in the books in the first place and payment being made in the first place. But the other problem is there are so many obvious other reasons for this transaction. In other words, because we don't want people if you know we influence the court of public opinion every day, we influence elections all around all around the world. Uh, we can, can be accused of doing so every single day because we talk about issues that could impact those elections that could persuade electorates and those populations or at least some portion thereof of making a different decision based upon it. And you don't even have to have the materiality effect of impacting a voter to influence an election. You just have to be out to influence it. Well, so why can't we all be prosecuted around the globe for campaign finance violations? Well, in the United States, it's very simple. It's because the constitutional restriction requires that it be the the purpose, not a purpose. The purpose has to be the influence in election. So if there's any alternative purpose behind a payment, it cannot be considered an indirect payment, cannot be considered a campaign contribution. If you give it directly to the campaign, then that satisfies the purpose requirement. But if it's not a direct payment to the campaign, it can only be considered a direct indirect payment to the campaign if the only purpose is to serve the campaign. If there's any other purpose, the mere fact it might also benefit the campaign does not make it illegal, lest the whole world be subject to criminal prosecution for how much time we donate our labor on social media trying to influence people on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else. And so that's why this same issue came up in the Donald Trump Jr. when they were trying to prosecute him for talking to that Russian. 
uh, they're like, oh, this was an illegal campaign contribution he was conspiring because she provided something of value and blah, 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 blah. Hogwash. It has to be the reason has to be the only reason, the exclusive reason, hence the word the, not a, and the constitutional requirement for that to be interpreted in that manner. And the problem is Michael Cohen had a bunch of other reasons. One, that for his own professional interest, he wanted to, and the reality is he never should have paid off Stormy Daniels. The guy was an idiot. Stormy Daniels is a bogus porn star. Nobody was going to care what she said. Uh, it was already baked in the cake politically, and, and it was not going to embarrass Melania, Stormy Daniels making bogus allegations. Other people could cause embarrassment to Melania. She wasn't going to believe that Trump, a notorious germaphobe, randomly banged a mid-level porn star. Just saying, man, it's reality. It's like, I mean, you, if you know Trump, you know, uh, she needed to be on a different, 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 different rankings. But that way. So the, uh, so this was just Cohen trying to prove how great and indispensable Cohen was to Trump by making the payment and then, you know, demanding reimbursement later, but really saying, look at how great I am. I'm your fix it, man, Mr. President. When he was actually just a mediocre strip mall lawyer who was committing every crime known to man for two decades under the guise of doing it for Trump when it wasn't for Trump at all. So you, but you have that issue that McCohen did it for his own personal professional interest, not for anything to, that's the other additional purpose. And you just need an additional purpose. It doesn't have to be the exclusive purpose. It doesn't have to be the primary purpose. It just has to be any additional purpose. Then you have the fact that Trump's, let's say he did do it for Trump. Trump's personal reputation with Melania would be the most compelling reason to pay off hush money to a mistress, not his campaign when he, uh, the Access Hollywood tape had already circulated everywhere. So, and not only that, that was baked in the cake with Trump. I remember arguing with Sean Trendy, my friend at the time. It's like, everybody knows who Trump is. He's got Playboy and CAD tattooed on his forehead. There's, nobody has any doubts about, oh, Trump had maybe had an affair. Shock, shock. I mean, he got divorced to the first wife to marry the second wife, and they got divorced to her to marry the third wife. Every He was in the tabloid press for, for 10 years in the 80s about all of his uh, uh, exploits. He was pretending to be someone else as his own press spokesperson to talk about all the women that loved him. I mean, you know, the, the, everybody knew Trump was Trump. Nobody, nobody had any doubts about that. The difference between, say, Trump and Clinton is Trump runs in, comes in the room and he wants to seduce your wife, your girlfriend, or your daughter. Clinton comes in, he has, unfortunately, more nefarious intentions, right? The Trump you can deal with, Clinton, not so much. But everybody knew he wasn't exactly the, he wasn't a priest. Uh, well, maybe that's a bad analogy these days. But he wasn't like a beacon of moral integrity when it comes to personal sexual behavior. So this wasn't for the campaign. This could be for Cohen's own professional interest, for Trump's own uh, relationship interest with Melania, Trump's own personal reputational interest. Uh, because Stormy Daniels is down the list, not just because of the affair. Uh, people be like, man, Trump has some bad taste. The In Trump's view, how it would be interpreted. And Trump's business branding, right? Trump's brand is his business. That's part of what the New York State is going after him, saying he exaggerated the value of his business brand. Uh, so, But the brand was the key part of his business. Anything that went into that brand should be protected. And that would really be the primary reason, not only a reason why it should be done. So the reason why you don't see a clear allegation of an actual crime committed is because no crime was actually committed. By <laughs> Absolutely. Kent, thank you for that absolutely brilliant summary, Robert, taking us through every point. Just a few things to say. I think just quickly, I think it's worth pointing out that the company in question, the Trump Organization, is, as I understand it, wholly owned by Donald Trump. It is, it is his own company. We're not talking about, you know, uh, um, 
somebody who owns five percent of the shares and some big um you know traded stock market traded company uh um it's not that it's not it is he's in purely his own company so this is if this is fraud he's defrauding himself <laughs> that's already it seems to me a fundamental obvious problem in this whole this whole thing the second is of course that if uh, uh michael cohen was doing various things um also giving advice to Donald Trump, and you know he was his lawyer. Then, of course, Donald Trump is—it seems to me straightforwardly. I mean, he's got no obvious reason why he should go behind what his lawyer's advice is. But the third point, and this is the really key one, because I remember—I actually remember reading the far more interesting indictment of Michael Cohen when Michael Cohen was prosecuted now i cannot remember for the life of me who produced that indictment i actually think it was the southern district of new york in other words a federal uh, it was done at federal level rather than state level but it was extremely interesting first thing it said was that michael cohen massively exaggerated his importance and his connections to donald trump that was one thing the second thing uh, this indictment said apart from the fact that, you know, he was utterly corrupt and a criminal and doing all those kind of things, is that Michael Cohen insinuated himself into Trump's um, favour by presenting himself as an effective fixer. It actually says that. I mean, that, I mean that's essentially what it says. And the third thing it says is that uh, one of the reasons Cohen did that was that he was hoping that if Donald Trump got elected, this is this is Cohen hoping this, not Donald Trump. Cohen was hoping that if Trump got elected, Cohen would get a job in the Trump administration. And he was, of course, utterly furious when it didn't happen because Donald Trump actually didn't take him terribly seriously it is all there in the indictment i remember reading this and i mean there was all sorts of people who were trying to insinuate at the time that um when um cohen was going to be prosecuted that um trump would also be indicted as a you know what what is it a co-conspirator an unnamed co-conspirator or something like that and of course he wasn't i mean absolutely wasn't indicted in that way and one of the reasons was because as I said, the prosecutorial agency at that time, a actual <laughs> professional prosecutorial agency, took the clear view that this man actually wasn't acting on Donald Trump's instructions or colluding with him on anything. He was, as I said, working on his own, trying to win favor with Donald Trump with the ultimate purpose intention in that at that time of getting a job in the Trump in a in a future Trump administration, which he didn't get. It's the most interesting explanation and discussion of who and what Michael Cohen, the star witness in this case, it, it, it is. And as I said, I think people really need to go back to that indictment and read that indictment and of course, it was an indictment, which I think, again, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to. 
I mean, I think he 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 pleaded guilty. So I mean, you know, he's not really in a position, or so it seems to me, to go back and go behind it. Now, can I just say, Robert, I don't I don't know all this backstory. I didn't know all this backstory, all this all these legal points that you made um, when I read that indictment. But can I just say anybody with any experience reading indictments can see immediately facial that this is facially absurd. It is ridiculous. How can you prosecute someone on the basis that they have some kind of intention to commit some kind of terrible, evil, appalling crime and not say what that crime is? I mean, that is nonsense. That is that is so ludicrous. I, I, I just cannot understand how this indictment is still functioning. I would have thought any judge, and I want you to discuss this judge, any judge presented with an indictment like this would be saying to the prosecutor, is this a joke? <laughs> what kind of indictment is it? I mean, you know, strike it out. Because it, 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 this indictment demands to be struck out, dismissed summarily, and tell the prosecutor, look, if you've got a case, go away, get me a proper indictment, because this one doesn't, doesn't run, I mean, it doesn't fly. It's just too ludicrous for words. And can I just say something else? I mean, you know, in, in bad countries where prosecutions are brought by the authorities corruptly, in order to knock out opponents, you know, selected prosecutions. And that does happen. And I, I know that it happens. It's happened in Greece, for example. Can I just say that one of the things about those kind of countries is that usually, because you're talking about a deeply corrupt political system, usually, the indictment, even though it is brought with a evil purpose, actually generally alleges real crimes, real corruption. This doesn't even do that. I mean, it's, it, as you rightly said, I mean, the thing about Donald Trump is he must have been the most honest person in the construction industry, not just in the United States, but in the world, because they haven't, this is all they can come up with. It is, it is ridiculous. It, 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 it appalls me to think this. So, I mean, thank you for all that you've said. I mean, as I said, a proper indictment would have tried to address these points, <laughs> would have explained what the crime was, would have explained to the judge why, in spite of the threadbare and ridiculous and inconsistent things, you know, all of these various legal concerns that you've articulate it don't really apply but of course it doesn't do any of that and of course the other thing about it is that it repeats these same points 34 times and perhaps you can say something about stacking because I don't know what the position is with stacking in the United States but in Britain the Crown Prosecutions Agency has clear guidelines that you don't do it. Oh, no doubt. So, I mean, in terms of prosecutorially, the ethical violations made here are numerous. Uh, the, uh, the, some rise to constitutional violations, some do not. 
Uh, it includes targeting the president in the first place, targeting a former political opponent in the first place, not disqualifying everyone who has a disqualifying position. And and what's happening in America, you as a judge, as a jurist, as an administrator, as a jury, as a prosecutor, you're not supposed to have any decision making role in a case where your impartiality can merely be questioned. It's not whether you think you're impartial or not. It's not whether you're objectively, as a matter of fact, impartial or not. It's whether or not the entire world would agree you're impartial or not. And so on those grounds, he should have disqualified most of the prosecutors in his office from any further inquiry or investigation, assigned someone who is an indisputably, undeniably impartial prosecutor to be involved. The way the grand jurors should have been chosen was to screen out anyone who disliked Trump. And it was if this is a legitimate case, bring in Trump's own supporters on the grand jury. And then if it's if it's truly a legitimate case, they'll go forward. But they will prevent an illegitimate case from going forward. Instead, it looks like just the opposite was done. They stacked the grand jury with a bunch of Trump haters. So you had a partial prejudicial grand jury rather than an independent impartial grand jury. Then you have, as you note, the joke of the indictment itself, likely suborn perjury, false statements of law to the grand jury, an indictment that fails to provide fair notice. And what are they really banking on for this case progressing and proceeding? Uh, and as you note, the stacking is unethical under American law as well. Now, the courts don't enforce it. They don't treat it as an unconstitutional violation, which I think is a mistake by the courts. But uh, though it can be an element of an aggregation of governmental misconduct that can be the basis of a motion to dismiss. But it's clearly unethical. And then, of course, this prosecutor then goes out and declares Trump guilty, which you can't do in America. In America, you have to say the indictment alleges, bah, 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 but remember, everybody, he's innocent and so proven guilty. Not this prosecutor. He goes out and says, guilty, 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 guilty. Uh, also, an egregious uh, ethics violation. So this prosecutor has violated almost every ethical rule you can to get here. But watch the same New York uh, bar that is obsessed with trying to kick Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor and federal prosecutor, out for merely bringing election suits challenging the election, do nothing about this openly corrupt uh, Soros-bought prosecutor. And there's what's amazing is uh, there was a lot of fact checkers running around saying, well, Soros didn't directly contribute to him. Talk about you know some indirect campaign contributions maybe in violation of federal law. George Soros just gave a million dollars through another organization that then gave it to his organization to make sure this guy got elected. So that's how Soros operates as he operates globally. There's a lot of confession through projection here. The things that are being alleged against Trump that are not true were true of Hillary Clinton. She disguised the Russian Russiagate dossier that was laundered through U.S. intelligence and the FBI. How did it get there? It was disguised. The Steele dossier was procured and pushed by members of Perkins Co. Michael Sussman was one of the lawyers who got criminally indicted and got to walk because he was in a D.C. jury pool, which we'll get to in a second, the jury pool issues here. But, uh, per, but how did that happen? Was any of that disclosed as a campaign finance contribution or ex uh, uh, expense in a, as, a, as a legitimate one? No, it was all disclosed as legal services. Where do you think they got the idea to come after Trump for ledgering items as legal services? Because Hillary Clinton did it at a much bigger scale, committed a real crime. She disguised the Russian scam, the Russiagate scam, the fake dossier as a legal expense of Perkins Co. when it was actually paid for, purchased by campaign expenses solely for a campaign purpose. Uh, so, and then, oh, by the way, Obama did similar things 
Uh, Biden, of course, has done it at broader scale. He's been selling access to his office uh, like he's a low level brothel for the last 30 years. So, uh, you know, you know, that's where Hunter got the idea, you know, just naturally extended one for the other. Uh, you know, the, if you're going to be a prostitute, you might as well procure them as well. So that, that's who the Biden family is writ large. So they're the ones who are doing the things they're accusing Trump of doing and on real scale for real consequence. But it comes back to your, to your question about the judge and the jury. The other only reason they chose this state, this case first, because for those that are out there don't know, the FEC looked at this and said there was no even campaign violation. Then the Southern District of New York looked at this and they hated Trump. They were going after Michael Cohen to try to get Trump. But as you noted, they admitted in their indictment, Michael Cohen's biggest crime was lying about how tied to Trump he was and setting up a bogus lobbying organization. While committed, he, he was involved in an illegal tra- taxi deal, massive tax fraud. You know, the guy committed a crime every other day, um, uh, Michael Cohen. And so that's why he was willing to tell anybody any story they wanted about Trump. And they couldn't even find a credible one in the Southern District of New York to indict Trump on. So they walked away from this. Robert Mueller and all of his political hacks. Just look at how political Andrew Weissman is online. And you can see what a political hack this guy was. He was the number two under Mueller. They couldn't find a crime to indict Trump with. And what they're stuck with is, uh, and they they probably were going to look at Georgia, look at the Mar-a-Lago classified case, look at January 6th. But if they bring Mar-a-Lago a classified documents case, they have a bigger problem because Joe Biden committed it on real scale. Now, my view is all these do- way too much, too many documents are overclassified in the first place. This is a bunch of crap. This is the crap they're bringing against Julian Assange. The, the, the government should not be rewarded for trying to hide the secrets of their criminality from the American people by only prosecuting the people that disclose those crimes in the first place, which is what the Julian Assange prosecution is. Not only a violation of press rights and speech rights, violation of us, the American people's right to know what our own government is up to and whether they committed crimes. So I'm not a fan of all these classification, overclassification to begin with. But if you're going to prosecute Trump on it, when it's clear he had presidential power to declassify under the Presidential Records Act and under the classifications law and under the Constitution's exclusive right of, of, of power, you got to indict Biden, who did it while he was vice president and senator. Uh, you know, and, and you got to basically indict half of D.C. because they all got classified something sitting at home. Uh, that's the nature of that, uh, that, that, that city. So they have that problem. And January 6th, they have a problem with one. It was mostly a bunch of informants and infiltrators who instigated the crime in the first place. The crime has been exaggerated. It was mostly just a low-level riot where two-thirds of the people stayed between the lines while they walked around and did an unlo- you know, just an unauthorized tour of the Capitol is what 90% of the people did. Um, and then, of course, it turns out it was infiltrators, informants, and instigators who were behind it all. It was Reichstag fire part two. Uh, it just didn't end up as calamitous as they as I think some deep state apparatus wanted it to. Uh, and of course, they never have found that mysterious so-called bomber who they have videotape of. There seems to be a lack of interest in that. Uh, so so it's hard to go after Trump for that also because no one would flip on him because there's no credible allegation that Trump was behind anything illegal in the first place when he told people to peacefully protest. So what is that? And then, of course, if they bring Mar-a-Lago or if they bring the, uh, the January 6th case, that's the Biden administration. And then it's directly the Biden administration trying to indict his political opponent. Whereas at least it's one step removed when it's New York and you have federal judges, some of whom are appointed by Trump himself uh, in a federal court system, which has some Republican appointees in it. So you can't trust it like you can all the Democrats in the New York court system. You could go at Georgia, Fulton County, but they're the woman who led the grand jury is a literal witch. I mean, you can't make this up. It's they actually put a witch, someone who brags that they're a witch uh, as the foreperson on the grand jury against Trump. So it turns out the witch hunt was literally being led by a witch. 
Uh, so the uh, so there's that problem. The case is bogus. I was part of representing Trump in Georgia. That was a mediation settlement conversation that never should have been publicly disclosed, was disclosed in violation of federal law that whoever did it should have been prosecuted, but of course never was. Number one. Number two, as part of settlement discussion and conversation, every position Trump made was a legitimate position. Nothing about it was criminal whatsoever. Uh, third, it should have been prosecuted at the state level, not the county level, if there was any criminal activity. And last but not least, they have the problem that they're in a Republican state in terms of state legislature and governor. So any Thing a Fulton County grand jury does can be looked at again at the state level and likely be set aside. This is why they went back begging to New York, where the prosecutors, several prosecutors had quit because they were mad that Trump wasn't indicted within the statute of limitations that you mentioned. So in the statute of limitations, you have five years to bring the indictment. Well, the last uh, thing that happened in the indictment is 2017, while uh, Trump was still president, of course. That meant the statute of limitations expired in, this, in 2022. That's why they quit. Bragg himself told people last year, there's no case here, so I'm not bringing it. Several of his most political prosecutors quit and whined about it to the press, and one of them wrote a book about it. it amazing. But their admission was by not bringing it then, they could not bring it later. Yet now he has. Now in New York, they've tried to say, here's what, there is an exception to the statute of limitations. If you can't indict someone because you can't find them and evidence critical to them. here. Trump was in the White House. They knew where he was. He wasn't unavailable. He was outside the state, but he wasn't unavailable. So they're trying to misuse that outside the state rule to say somehow for every day you're ever not inside the state extends the statute of limitations. The New York courts have never been that bold before. Uh, and that's how bad just the statute of limitations is grounds to dismiss the case. An honest court would. But to the question of the judge and the jury, the reason they picked New York. And this was a deep state tied operation. It's not coincidental that this was one of Soros's top favorite prosecutors. It's not coincidental that key people working for this prosecutor have deep, deep state ties. It's not a coincidence that one of the deep state strongest allies in Congress was reported by the New York Times and Politico as constantly meeting. Someone who's involved in the uh, impeachment efforts against Trump uh, was uh, meeting with Bragg in the weeks building up to whether or not to bring the indictment. So this is a deep state indictment uh, aligned with Democrats but was not solely or wholly or ever would have been brought if it was just Democrats doing it. I don't think Bragg himself had turned this down a year ago. So uh, they're bringing it because they have more political control of the judicial and, ju and jury pool in New York than they do even in DC or in uh, Georgia. <laughs> and so the Fulton County judges, for example, are also appointed. They're all not, they're elected in a certain way, but basically you have a mixture of judges at the state court level in Fulton County. So you couldn't guarantee a liberal democratic judge. You can in Manhattan, you have a guaranteed liberal democratic judge. You have a guaranteed liberal democratic jury pool. The Manhattan jury pool voted, I think less than 7% for Trump. All right. And, and you pretty much know who those are. If you're on, if you, if they're a, uh, independent, a politically independent, not registered Democrat, black man under the age of 40, or they're Asian American, or they're Mexican American or Puerto Rican in East Harlem, and also not registered Democrat with the same demographics, younger male, et cetera. Uh, and, or you're the, one of the very, very, very few conservatives on the Upper West Side. Uh, then they know pretty much who you are because then you're a registered Republican. They know how to exclude any pro Trump juror from the jury poll. The typical jury, 12 people, would have 10 Trump haters one neutral and one Trump supporter on the jury. They know how to get rid of the Trump supporter and the neutral pretty easily. Um, so the jury pool is very bad 
And we've seen that in many cases out of New York mm. and the District of Columbia. It's uh, it's almost as bad, though not quite as bad as D.C. is from a jury pool perspective, where they have more control as the judges, the trial court judges, the appeals court judges, the Supreme Court judges. Now, in New York, people are going to be thrown off by something. The Supreme Court is the lowest level court. They call their trial court the Supreme Court of New York. Anybody mm. who's watched a lot of Law & Order We'll have seen that in the bottom where they do the you know, the music, blah, 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 the Supreme, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, chamber, you know, chamber number seventeen, et cetera. Uh, I've been in that courtroom a couple of times. I represented Amy Cooper. The one good thing in New York is the New York Police Department. They didn't like this case, so that's what I was telling people in advance. Unlikely he would be perp walked. Unlike he would be mugshot. Unlike he would get. Uh, unlikely he would uh, get any kind of jail processing. Unlikely any of that would occur, or they get handcuffed. None of that occurred. Because one, the New York PD has a lot of professionals in it. Secondly, a lot of them love Trump and think this case is complete crap. So that's their only <laughs> vulnerability in the system from the Democratic side is the police department's not on board with this. Trump wasn't perp walked, wasn't handcuffed, uh, wasn't mugshot or anything else. Now, apparently he's selling a, a, a version of his mugshot as a, as a, uh, as, as a, as a commercial as on his T-shirt. And that was because I put out to people early on just to kind of troll the left. That, you know, I was like, you know, somebody else has a famous mugshot. They thought it would ruin his political career. And it's Martin Luther King. The, uh, you know, like, like Melissa has a, has a mugshot. Nelson Mandela has a mugshot. Mugshots uh, can be a way to rally the political opposition, not kill the political opposition. Mm. But this, the deep state hasn't learned. Because in America, that's only happened once or twice in our history. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing a special little Viva Barnes live event in my hometown, yeah. Chattanooga, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. as a birthday bash on a Tennessee riverboat. And I'm going to be doing a hush-hush yeah. on a famous Tennessee politician they thought they could take out this way. Didn't mm. quite work my, when my hometown yeah. guy. One of only two people to ever be uh, elected while under indictment. And that's why they brought it. They thought normally this kills somebody. This ends their career. This ends their tenure. Normally they capitulate. Normally they fold and go away in America. They don't fight it. They, they, no. they, they get on their knees and beg for mercy. They don't go Martin Luther King. They don't go Nelson Mandela. Most of the political class would capitulate in a heartbeat and confession through projection, just like they confess their crimes onto Trump. They confess their cowardice onto Trump. And they assume that that would happen. And Trump's was never going to be that way. And they don't understand the American electorate and the populist rebellion that's burgeoning. I mean, no. the, the, our American political class makes Marie Antoinette look like she's naturally in touch with her local populace. That's how bad it is here. Uh, and the Trump indictment reflects that. But mm. they do have a jury pool in their pocket. The judge is deeply tied. His daughter was one of Kamala Harris's key uh, campaign people. Uh, all of the Manhattan prosecutors, uh, Manhattan judges, are politically corrupted. Uh, I don't know any of them that you could trust to be independent and impartial in a case like this. Dershowitz mm -hmm. said it himself. Dershowitz said, look, there's not, he goes, these judges don't want to experience what I experienced. I just represented Trump and, I, and I'm and i persona, and my whole family's persona non grata in New York where I grew up and, and, and in places like Martha's Vineyard where I vacation. He's like, you know, the, he goes, no judge is going to want to deal with that kind of re, uh, a re rebuke from his local community. So the judges cannot be independent and, and impartial in Manhattan, think 1950s Birmingham, Alabama, and think of Trump as Martin Luther King, and you can guess how the judges and juries are going to act. They're mm. going to be lynching judges and lynching juries who are going to refuse to enforce the law. That's how Sullivan versus New York Times came about, because the local jury and judicial pool was such a joke. Supreme Court came in and limited libel law forever because of it. So the first move that Trump will likely make is he has grounds to move to disqualify the prosecutor. 
He has grounds to move to disqualify the judge. But even before, he has grounds to dismiss. He has grounds to stay the proceedings pending the outcome of the election so that this case doesn't impact and influence injudiciously or interfere with the election. They're planning on the trial right now taking place during primary season. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about how overtly, openly political this thing is. Um, the, uh, but he also could move to transfer the case to Staten Island to get away, to get a different judge who's not as politically contaminated because the judges are lo lo uh, elected locally in such a way that they, their Staten Island would be their relevant audience. And then a Staten Island jury poll, which actually leans Trump. Uh, that would, I mean, the, the New York prosecutor would probably rather dismiss the case than face a Staten Island jury on this, these set of facts. So, uh, but the, the reason they don't think that will happen is they assume no judge will grant it in New York. That unless the U.S. Supreme Court itself gets involved, the entire New York court process, the, all the New York judges are so biased against Trump that they will not enforce the law for a second. Uh, even when it is as significant, consequential, high profile and public as this is. And that's the great risk of these cases. Uh, to one of the Super Chat questions, in my view, you can't jail the president. In my view, you can't jail a presidential opponent during a presidential election without Im impacting constitutional rights and principles under the First Amendment. Um, but New York probably will ignore that. And so that that's the problem is you have wayward, rogue, politically contaminated, corrupted courts. And what, what I see as the white pill in all of this is that for those of us who have been representing outsiders and dissidents for decades and for my predecessors that have gone through it, uh, the political weaponization of our law enforcement process has always been there. But the ordinary American didn't see it. The Amer ordinary American thought law and order was a documentary series rather than a fictional series. And what they're seeing with Trump, it's like Trump, even if he doesn't intend to, always exposes the corruption of the deep state. You now have more people calling for the yeah. abolition of the FBI, defunding the FBI, abolishing the CIA, defunding the CIA, uh, de defunding the military industrial complex. The words deep state used to be something you had to read Peter Dale Scott and be in a liberal bookstore for anybody even to know what the heck you were talking about. And it had to be one of those left wing independent, you know, Jack Kerouac, San Francisco City Lights bookstore for them to know what you were talking about. Now I can walk into a small local Republican gathering in Lynchburg, Tennessee. I say the deep state and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So the deep state has exposed itself by indicting Trump. The deep state has indicted itself by indicting Trump. And I hope that the American people's verdict comes in loud and clear and gets rid of them once and for all. Yeah, I hope so too. I have to say, um, um, Robert, I mean, do people in the United States, in at least, I'm going to say people, I mean, the legal people, the legal profession, do they understand what they have done? I mean, do they understand what they're doing to New York? Do they understand what they're doing potentially to the United States? I don't just mean, you know, in terms of its international global reputation, which, you know, I, as I, said, I worked in a British system and we always took cognizance of commercial decisions made by commercial judges in New York. It was one of the courts that we took seriously. People are going to take it less seriously from this point on. They're going to take a lot of protestations the United States makes about cases, Navalny, whatever, less seriously. But do they understand also what the political effect of this is going to be? I mean... I, I think only partially. So I think mm -hmm. some on the right do. 
So you see Lindsey Graham, you know, rallying to the Trump cause. I think uh, Graham, you know, of course, secretly hates Trump, um, but the uh, uh, is leveraging a South Carolina position to keep Trump close and Trump keep Trump keeps him close for that reason. Uh, but the fact that he's out screaming about the indictment, yeah. Glenn Beck is screaming about it. Mark Levin, a big neocon war supporter, uh, is is screaming about it. Sebastian Gorka, kind of a war whore on Ukraine and other topics, he's screaming about it. So there's pretty uh, Joe Walsh, yeah. who tried to run against yeah. Trump in Iowa in 2020, yeah. is screaming about it. So on the right, there's pretty much National Review is screaming about it. So on the right, there's pretty much unanimity in saying this is a major mistake. Um, also, a lot of the DeSimps for DeSantis are frustrated now because De DeSantis's campaign has been completely derailed uh, by this indictment and his mishandling of early aspects of it. I mean, he later came out and said, I won't extradite Trump. And some people said, well, then Trump should just live in Florida, not campaign and hide out and challenge the New York indictment through its extradition provision. All that would have done was would have allowed an arrest warrant to be issued for Trump, prohibit Trump from traveling outside the state, allow them to go to the federal courts and use federal constitutional law to extradite Trump. And then he would there would have had grounds to deny bail because he had not voluntarily appeared. Uh, so that would not been in his legal or political best interest. It was in DeSantis's best interest all along, precisely because he never would have faced the consequences of it, which is one of DeSantis's favorite tactics make a big mm. public announcement and then never deal with the political consequences mm. of it. Like Disney, I'm going to take out Disney. Mm, then not change the laws in such a way that Disney just can't totally ignore them as it's turned out to be the case. Uh, I'm going to bring in a Florida grand jury to go after Farmer for its criminal activities. That's great. But I'm not even going to reach out to uh, to the biggest whistleblower in, in, in the world, Brooke Jackson, to even have her evidence presented to the grand jury for that actually to occur. Uh, so here was a perfect opportunity for him to grandstand, say, I will not condone or tolerate this outrageous abuse of po uh, political weaponization of power by this Soros appointed district attorney. Uh, I will never extradite President Trump or any Florida citizen for this. Right. Instead, he goes out and makes a pot shot and a joke about Stormy Daniels uh, trying to pretend he has like this perfect moral record. Uh, they already have the photos of him partying with uh, underage girls when he was a prep school teacher in between Yale and Harvard, right? New York Times and others are sitting on it. They're waiting for him to get a nomination and then amb ambush him late. It's a mistake of him. This was Trump was hinting at this. He was like, hey, Ron, you know, uh, someday they might bring up false allegations about you, and then you're going to understand what this is all about. That was him winking uh, about it, uh, about what that is. So that was not a good political move uh, by DeSantis. But what he also didn't embrace his power then. He lay, learned his lesson and embraced his power after Trump was indicted, but still didn't make as much political theater as he could have about it. And he's sinking like a rock. So, so, so political fallout is on the right. It has rallied everyone, even Trump critics, to Trump's cause. Uh, on the primary, it has basically completely derailed a dying DeSantis campaign from even running. DeSantis, in my view, got deceived by the deep state into campaigning. Uh, he got tricked into doing it. He should have aligned with Trump. I think he does have some sincere populist instincts. Those are mixed in with his ambition for power, which he and his wife have an unlimited appetite for. And they use that against him, just as they use Trump's stubbornness against him in the vaccine context and aspects of the COVID context. They used DeSantis's ambition against him to derail his own future political aspirations and ambitions uh, by challenging and contesting Trump, which if he's smart, he'll realize he should not do and just drop out entirely. 
But the third political impact, Democrats are still uncertain. So you see uh, the more independent-minded, old-school, free-speech, Berkeley liberal types uh, like Alan Dershowitz, like Jonathan Turley, uh, come out and condemn the indictment in no uncertain terms. Uh, Dershowitz called it the worst and weakest indictment he's ever seen in his life. Turley called it 34 times zero, still equals zero. Uh, I mean, these are some harsh criticisms from people who haven't been as critical of other criminal cases brought in this context. Uh, so you, you even had people like McCabe, ex-FBI director, tried to take out Trump McCabe, look at this indictment and kind of shake his head. But my favorite has to be John Bolton. John Bolton almost broke down crying on CNN. It was probably, this is supposed to be a good indictment. It's supposed to finally take him out. Now, now it's probably going to make him stronger. It'll be dismissed. I'm probably going to quit. I mean, he, he cried more than when he doesn't get to bomb somebody. So the uh, that gives you an idea that there's some recognition amongst the establishment mm. side. Now, James Comey said it was a good day for America, in case you have any doubts about who and what James <laughs> Comey was about. Uh, and the, uh, Rachel Maddow and Jake Tapper said they weren't going to cover Trump's announcement. Rachel Maddow said because we can't afford lies on MSNBC. Well, I thought that's all they do is to tell lies. Uh, so that there's some denial by them, but I think there's broad recognition that this was shock shockingly weak. They expected secret mm -hmm. facts that nobody knew. They expected mm -hmm. a secret whistleblower informant that came out with explosive testimony. They expected a powerful political narrative. What's interesting here is the New York prosecutor avoided that because he wants because he's got legal defects in the indictment, so he wanted to stay flexible. Mm -hmm. But because of that, it didn't have your typical political rhetoric that yeah. your federal indictment tends to have in America. Yeah. But it's always full with crap that has nothing to do with the yeah. case. Yeah. Um, but they didn't do that. So people were reading this like saying, uh... Uh, so it failed. It backfired amongst the political right. It, it, the, the establishment recognized it's really weak. And in a court of public opinion, almost a majority of Democrats said this was a political indictment, not a legal yeah. indictment. Yeah. That shows how bad a position they're in. And uh, to transition to the next topic, uh, you know, it's probably not a complete coincidence that after this indictment, the vulnerability of the Biden administration was even more on display for the world to witness and the insepid corruption of the Democratic Party uh, and its elites uh, reflective such that uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. filed his paperwork to run for the presidency of the United mm. States. In my view, the best presidential candidate on the Democratic side since his father in 1968. Well, what are his chances? Because um, I've had lots of people asking me this question, but I mean, he's going to be taking on, he's going to be campaigning to be elected to become the, nomination, the nominee for president from a party which is very different from that which his father had to deal with. Now, I say that, you know, let's idealise the old Democratic Party. I mean, it was full of corruption and all kinds of awful people and terrible things. I mean, if you know anything at all about American history and American politics should be under no illusions about what the Democratic Party was any more than you should be any, under any illusions about what the Democratic Party is. But the Democratic Party of the 60s was still connected, in my opinion, in a, a, a very strong way with the vital life of America, of the American people which today's America, uh, Democratic Party essentially is not. Today, it's a purely corrupt, elitist 
operation. It's in that respect, it's different. So Robert Kennedy is going to take all that on. I mean, can he? Will he have a chance? I mean, this is the question. I mean, I ask. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. So I see it as like a threefold uh, issue. One, why is he running? Second, how will he campaign? And third, can it be effective? So the why he's running relates to his father and his uncle as he sees their legacy. So he sees his uncle John. He's the oldest Kennedy kid. He's the only one who really has memory of his uncle's presidency and his father's candidacy in a deep level. He was uh, 14 when his father was assassinated. Uh, he was a, a older teenage, you know, or an older child when his uncle John was assassinated. There's pictures of him, of course, in the White House uh, running around with his uh, cousins. Uh, John Jr., of course, died some years ago, right around the time he was about running for the Senate in New York. Uh, uh, well, here's the thing. John Kennedy Jr. thinks about running for Senate in New York. His plane crash, plane goes down and he dies. Who became senator from New York that same cycle? Uh, I'll let folks look it up at home. Uh, it, it's a little death curse that magically follows certain people. I mean, they even had a lawyer die on a plane somehow. And they don't know how the person died. And all the, the only thing is, all you needed to know was connected to this particular political family. Like, ah, well, death curse, it's again. Anybody who honey, honeymoons in Haiti, you got to wonder about a little bit. Uh, in terms of what exactly they're doing down there with those voodoo priests. Uh, but ask Ron Brown taking a little trip to uh, Bosnia about that. So the uh, but so Robert Kennedy Jr., whenever he's even thought about running before, they've unleashed uh, attacks a on him. So, you know, he goes into D.A.'s office in New York and suddenly they find heroin on him on a plane that derails his political career. It's like, really? Uh, how is it? Yeah. How many other people have you heard they somehow found some sort of drug on somebody that derailed their political campaign? Then he talks about running years later for the United States Senate. And all of a sudden, a private diary gets leaked to embarrass and attack him uh, in a very nasty way. Uh, so they, they have been following him around for a while. Robert Kennedy Jr. wrote a book and people get confused because the rest of the Kennedy family, for the most part, is political establishment. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. never has been. He's always been a dissident. Uh, he, he's been an environmental lawyer, but what I call a local environmental lawyer. Uh, now, he believes in a lot of the global climate change and other things that I'm not as big a fan of the policies or believe in some of those underlying theories that he does. But if you look at his legal career, his legal career has been about protecting local waterways, local air, local ground, local farms. That He's been the right, right of you as an ordinary person to not have crap in your backyard. Uh, that's who he is, more of the populist side of environmental law. And then about you know a decade ago, he got involved in questioning big pharma and the vaccine movement uh, and, and vaccine issues and whether they were as uh, impregnable from questioning and skepticism as the political establishment would have you believe. He then wrote a book in, 2000, I think, 2015 about the, his whole family, American values, in which he laid out what he believed about his father and uncle. And this is important to why he is running. He believes, in fact, he said so publicly at a conference recently, uh, he said, my family has been waging a war with the deep state for 60 years. And they and he believes the deep state killed his Uncle John as president of the United States and the deep state killed his father in 1968. And I think he attributes the deep state aspects of trying to derail his own political professional career. Um, the uh, He was up at, uh, in full disclosure, I've 
told him and the people around him that I'd be happy to help out his campaign because I believe in his campaign. So people say, ah, Barnes is friends with Kennedy. This, yeah, this Kennedy, yes, they're right. I was a big fan of his father. As a kid, I, I carried two books around after my own father passed away. Uh, one was Robert F. Kennedy uh, to a, a Newer World. Uh, great little campaign text. I recommend it to people to, uh, to see what a different kind of Democratic Party could have been looked like. Uh, he talked about the miners in Appalachia and nobody caring about them and paying attention to them. He had a balanced approach to Vietnam and being opposed to further intervention and, pull, and he wanted to pull out of Vietnam while, out, while not condemning the soldiers themselves for being forced to go there. His, his anti-Vietnam policy was a pro, his anti-Vietnam war policy was a pro-American policy, not as the anti-war movement had got caught up in anti-American, in my view, hysteria and anti-soldier activities that actually undermined anti-war activities, a problem the left has continued to this very day. Uh, Robert Kennedy never fell for that trap. He, he had a balance between on crime policy and urban riots. Uh, so it was unique. Uh, now, when his father, he, he of course, uh, he remembers this very well. When his father planned on running in 1968, the general assumption was it was going to be a complete disaster and his father would get crushed. And that it was a massive mistake to even run. There's an incumbent president, Lyndon Johnson. He just wanted a landslide. Why would you, Robert Kennedy, destroy your political future by doing this against a, pre a Democratic president? And Robert Kennedy Sr. ran anyway. And he said, I'm running because of the cause, because of the issues, because of these ideas. They need to be out there. I'm not running, even though no Kennedy ever lost an election. He famously joked about that after he lost the Oregon primary that year, that he contested uh, uh, against uh, uh, the other uh, Democrat in the race. Uh, but the, the uh, against McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy. But the what, uh, what he said all along was he knew that he was up against it. In fact, almost everyone said he shouldn't run and almost everyone uh, was against him. He made a joke when he gave a speech in Oklahoma to a student rally uh, where he had that classic self-deferential Kennedy humor that Robert Jr. has. It's a very useful skill when you have the kind of political legacy and prominence uh, of that family. You're able to make self-deprecating humor and jokes all the time. To give one example. He liked to tell the same joke John Jr. liked to tell when the John Jr. was going through JFK Airport in New York and gave the security guard his uh, passport Looked at, he goes, and the security guard he goes, oh, that's cute. Your family named you after the airport. So, you know, they like to tell those kind of comedy all the rest. So he's got that natural touch. Uh, he, he is very good uh, with, with people individually. But the reason he's running is a partially kind of why Trump is running. I mean, Trump campaign basically is 2024 payback. Uh, that's, that's what it increasingly is the slogan. And personally, I, I could say that is exactly why Trump is doing it. He wouldn't have run if he didn't think they stole the election from him. And he thinks they partially stole his presidency from him between COVID and the and Mueller and the and impeachments that they stole his chance to cut a peace deal with Russia, uh, to expand diplomatic ties and, and relationship with Russia, to realign economically but not militarily against China, to get a peace deal in North Korea. He believes he could have achieved all those things, but for the Mueller investigation derailing his political efforts and the Ukraine impeachment derailing his political efforts. There's legitimate criticism by Michael Tracy and others about what Trump failed to do. But they, people should remember every time he tried to do even a little thing, like call up Zelensky and say, maybe you could deal with corruption before I send you more money in arms. He got impeached for it. <laughs> you know, anytime he went a little bit over that line, wham, uh, or they threatened his family with indictment. Trump is still bitter about it. But uh, I always like to say, you know, the Bible says that the sins of the father will be visited upon the son. 
But I say I like to say the inverse is also true. The sins against the father will be long remembered by the son. I speak from personal belief on that matter. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is no different. He is neither forgotten nor forgiven the deep state for what they did to his father and his uncle. And he's partially running as payback. And he's also running because he believes and he wants a public platform to talk about all of those issues. But he's also running because he believes the deep state has so corrosively corrupted American constitutional democracy that it no longer even functions. Not only is he running because he thinks the road not taken by his uncle and father diverted America on a perilous path that for which it has not recovered and suffered serious detriment, but that it is now on that path to its own peril and the world's peril. That World War III is a realistic risk. That global catastrophe is realistic, realistic risk. And a lot of this was the COVID issues. Uh, he saw what the deep state could do on a global scale using a pandemic as its pretext. He sees central bank digital currencies. He sees uh, lockdowns. He sees mass house arrest. He sees medical invasion. He sees forced medical experimentation. He sees all of this as the most perilous path to totalitarian government in American history. And so he believes he has to run in order to contest those issues and at least present an option to the American people. And how he will run will be a very much like his father's 1968 campaign, a very populist campaign, a liberal populist perspective. He's liberal on abortion, liberal on the environment, liberal on racial discrimination laws, liberal on civil rights, liberal on gun control. He's liberal on all those issues, but he's populist on issues of trade, issues of war, issues of public health, issues of big pharma. You know, he's going to run against big pharma, big food, big oil, and big government combined, as he sees it, and the deep state's collusion and corruption and capture of American government as its principal threat and needing of remedy. Now, can he win? Well, when his father ran, nobody thought he'd get anywhere. They thought his father would get crushed and beat up. And instead, after his father won California on the backs of working class, coalition of working class whites, Mexican-Americans, and black voters. By the way, George Corley Wallace's favorite voters, their second favorite candidate in 1968, Robert Francis Kennedy. That gives you an idea for the Wallace vote not being quite what the immediate uh, establishment liked to believe it was, but also the power and the potency and the cross-partisan appeal of, of, of Robert Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy Jr. is almost a spitting image of his father in terms of style, in terms of substance, in terms of personality, in terms of belief structure. And so, uh, and he doesn't like to lose. And so he's in it to win it. Uh, so if, if he can raise the money, if he can get the volunteers to meaningfully compete, he wants Iowa and New Hampshire to come before South Carolina. Biden's trying to push South Carolina first because uh, he knows how. Biden has never finished above third in Iowa and New Hampshire ever in his life. First person to get elected president to not finish in the top three in any of the first three states to vote for the presidency uh, or top or first two states to vote in the presidency. And so in Iowa, New Hampshire. And so the uh, um, he finished distant fourth in both uh, in South Carolina, the machine that, that uh, elected him, the black political machine there uh, that put him in power is why you want South Carolina to be first. Now, so can he win? From a Democratic electorate perspective, uh, Richard Barris, the People's Pundit, recently did a poll. And the base, and he put everybody in. So the hardcore base of RFK is, you know, 3%, something like that. Uh, but that's with Biden around 30%, 35%. So that's if, like, all 12 candidates ran. If it was just him against Biden, it's going to be a different animal because he can inherit a lot of the anti-Biden protest vote. 
the his core base uh, is his father's base, working class, boomer generation, elderly white voters, uh, some Mexican American, some African American voters. The uh, the question is, you know, in 1980 when his uncle Ted ran, he kind of ran belatedly. Ted didn't run in the best campaign. What was interesting to note was could he have his father and his uncles, I'm sorry, his his two brothers support of amongst Mexican American and Black American voters? And the answer was it was shaky. He 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 made more headway than people thought, but he didn't win a majority of them against an incumbent president. Now that's an incumbent president from the South, Jimmy Carter who had a longstanding ability to win over black votes. But so that will be the big question. Uh, can he? Can Robert Kennedy compete in Iowa and New Hampshire? Absolutely. Especially if it's one-on-one. If it's one-on-one, what I'm telling tell people is Robert Kennedy Jr. is right now in the polls where his father started out in 1968. Uh, it's also where Bernie Sanders started out in 2016. So those campaigns should tell you that if you have the right campaign platform, if you right, have the right uh, personal projection, then you can absolutely compete, especially against adult like Biden, who's never been popular in New Hampshire or Iowa and is likely going to be unopposed other than RFK Jr. The big question is, can is the black political machine and the Democratic political machine so strong that they won't let Robert Kennedy Jr. break through to the African-American vote in the South and industrial Midwest and the Mexican-American vote throughout the Southwest? Uh, including California. That's an open question. They thought now the black, the, the political machine was no longer as strong. The Democratic political machine was nowhere near as strong in 1968 as it might be today. But they thought they would prevent his father from breaking through. And they turned out dead wrong. That's how his father won easily. His father was supposed to lose California. Two weeks before, they thought he'd lose by double digits. He had just lost Oregon. He went in and instead won by double digits. Um, and he won because of massive support from all the working class voters. That was back when you actually had a lot of working class whites in California. These days you don't. They've all fled the state. Uh, but the and the defense industry collapse also precipitated that. But the uh, big but he broke through amongst working class whites, Mexican-Americans and black voters uh, and was able to beat the Democratic political machine. And LBJ had a ruthless one in his own backyard. It's no longer LBJ, but unofficially it was LBJ. Uh, LBJ dropped out because he couldn't handle the humiliation of Bobby Seniors beating him up and smacking him around in an election after he got a bad return in the New Hampshire primary against a different candidate, Eugene McCarthy. Uh, but he was still behind the scenes orchestrating to get Robert Kennedy Sr. beat. And when he won California, it was clear he was going to be the Democratic nominee in 1968. And then he was, of course, assassinated that night, as Robert Kennedy Jr. said, by a deep state uh, uh, individual, not Saran Saran. He has said that publicly many times. Uh, even argued for Saran Saran's uh, uh, sentence being released, being paroled, because he said that that isn't who killed my dad. Uh, so that's why he's running. That's how he's running. And if his family legacy, particularly his father, is any example, and it's the closest Kennedy examples, his father's 1968 campaign is more analogous to his campaign this time than either his Uncle John's or his Uncle Ted's in 1960 or 1980, respectively. Uh, I would just say never underestimate a Kennedy. Uh, does he have an uphill battle against the deep state? Absolutely. Does he have an uphill, upstate, uh, uphill battle against the media? Absolutely. They're running smear pieces as soon as he filed his federal campaign paperwork. Uh, does he have a battle against the Democratic political machine and George Soros and Bill Gates? Absolutely. He's been publicly highly critical of both of them as an example. And both of them have been personally critical of Robert Kennedy and fear him more than they fear Trump. So all of those are real obstacles. But if his father's legacy is any example, 
Uh, anybody betting on those obstacles crushing a Kennedy are probably taking the wrong odds. Very interesting. Just just as a piece of personal reminiscence, um, Robert Kennedy's assassination is the first political event in my lifetime that I actually remember. It was the moment when I first noticed, I, I first became aware of a political event. It happened when I was you know, a small child, but I've always believed ever since, even at that time, that it changed the world. If Robert Kennedy had gone on to win the presidency of the United States in 1968, the world we would have been in would have been a completely different one from the one we know. And I can remember the shock everywhere. I was in Greece, of course, at the time. Greece was, Greece was a dictatorship at that time. But I can remember the shock, the horror of people. Anyway, there's one thing, one other thing that really stood out for me in all the things you just said, Robert, which is that he feels he has to bring this campaign. Now, that already makes him very, very different from, well, pretty much, not just pretty much, every other candidate who will be fighting this election. Every other candidate who is in this election is because they feel they have, well, they're, they're exercising a choice. They want to campaign. Somebody who thinks they have to campaign, who think that there's an awful lot at stake, who thinks there's an awful lot riding on this, well, that will give them something which none of the others have. I will watch this campaign with great interest. And my goodness, just imagine Donald Trump versus Robert Kennedy, um, you know, in 2024, the deep state, the political class, they will have the mother and father of all nervous breakdowns. Will it happen? Perhaps not, but we can hope. We can. We should never give up hope. Uh, and can I just also finish, Robert, by saying that the best thing he could do is to have you join his campaign. And by the way, I, I don't know whether you're at all tempted to join Donald Trump's legal team, which I know you don't have the highest opinions of, but... Um, Perhaps he should he should listen to your advice about getting some better lawyers than the ones he already has. Just just saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the I hope he continue. You know, he's put in a bunch of New York lawyers on his team: a white shoe lawyer, a PR criminal defense lawyer, uh, mm. the uh, and, and sort of and somebody that knows the insides of the yeah. New York prosecutor prosecutor's office. And that's all fine. But I would have you know a Dershowitz type. Apparently, Dershowitz publicly stated he said he doesn't want to. Uh, do another case uh, with Trump, but we'll be glad to help out in the court of public opinion. Yeah. But have a Dershowitz type, you know, someone that's scholastic, someone that comes from the Democratic side of the aisle, but sees how problematic this case yeah. is. And, and then have, you know, someone from the uh, populist right, someone who knows media and press and can work it well and, and be his, his lawyer inside and outside the courtroom on that. He needs somebody that's a little bit better on that side of the aisle as well. So hopefully he he upgrades, because if there's any lesson from the existence of the indictment itself, it's uh, uh, Trump hasn't always hired the best lawyers. That's always why, that's why he's here. You know, I always tell people, you know, you wouldn't go down to the local strip mall uh, to find a doctor for an important surgery for your kid. Uh, why do you go to the local strip mall to find your lawyer? Uh, don't find the cheapest lawyer. Find the best lawyer uh, yeah. that, you, you know, that you can't afford, yeah. but the best lawyer. 
uh, not not the cheapest. And that's what Trump often did. And that's why he's facing charges in the first place. He would never be here at all, but for <laughs> hiring the wrong lawyer. So hopefully he makes improvement on that side of the aisle as well. And always happy to either help the Trump legal team or Robert Kennedy's uh, political Absolutely. campaign. At a minimum, he's putting important issues in the court of public opinion about Absolutely. Big Pharma, about the deep state, uh, about all of it. Um, and yeah, to the I, deep I, state... Can I just say things people care about? I mean, if you do the kind of things that we do on the Duran, Alex and I, I mean, we just get inundated. At least I certainly get inundated with people talking about these things. And the political class is not talking about them. I mean, even Trump doesn't talk about them in the way that perhaps he should. Um, um, Robert Kennedy cares about these things. And as I said, I can imagine, I can see how that might, if, if if he's able to break through, I can see how that might catch, capture attention. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a Trump Kennedy race, like people said, you know, the uh, who, who you know who wins. So I said the American people win. Uh, that's who wins, and deep state yeah. loses if it's Trump yeah. versus Kennedy. That's a short answer on that one. The uh, and I think and I think there can be future alignment between them by Kennedy running as well in certain ways that might not have been more difficult otherwise. Yeah. But uh, if I the, the deep state is the one that's going to be looking for, you know, well, suddenly they're going to be interested in what countries they can't be extradited from. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of those folks if either Kennedy or Trump is the uh, the winner in 2024. <laughs> and uh, speaking of, you know, I, and I guess they'll probably have to go somewhere where they can find the, the euro dollar. So uh, one interesting thing in the entire financial debate to transition to that topic yeah. is I've been fascinated by this because. It's a perspective that kind of revolutionized my own theories and thoughts and filter and framework for understanding the dollar, because there are a lot of contradictions out there. It was like, OK, if the dollar is actually the reserve currency, the U.S. dollar that's being issued by the Fed as a reserve currency, then that should require we have a, a balance of payments deficit. It should require we have a trade deficit that should make the dollar almost always constantly strong. That's kind of the side effect of that. And yet a lot of that wasn't happening. On the flip side, if the Fed really controlled the dollar, then aspects of the even all the way back to the 80s, the Latin American financial sovereign debt crises, then the the Asian tigers in the 90s and then our own global financial crisis and then the pigs crisis in Europe, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece and Spain. A lot of this kind of shouldn't have happened in ways that did happen, apparently, to their shock and surprise. And then trying to figure out what's all going on currently uh, in the sense that you have the whole world wanting to, at least at some level, divorce themselves from dependence on the dollar, whether it's Lebanon, Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. Egypt is just recent examples. But what happened in each of those countries? Mm -hmm. Lebanon, because of dollar shortage, uh, has a complete collapse of their economy and society and governance. Mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, the same thing. Uh, Egypt, they, you know, they, they put in rules to try to restrict and put capital controls to not import in dollars. And all of a sudden, they have massive shortages and then massive protests that follow. Uh, you have China with Saudi Arabia, with Iran, with Brazil, with Russia, meaningfully trying to divorce from dependence on the dollar as the transactional currency of choice. And yet, even in Russia, there was a big Bloomberg article talking about the the, the one is more now more exchanged in March than the than the dollar was. But you dig deeper and the dollar is even in Russia is still being exchanged as often on the Moscow exchange as it was before the Ukrainian conflict and sanctions started. It's that the one is replacing 
other currencies like the euro and the pound, et cetera, uh, as Russia puts the one in its reserves. But Russia is the only one really putting the one in its reserves. Even China itself appears not all that interested in the one really being the yeah. world's reserve currency to the degree it requires they release their capital controls, to the degree it requires they let Juan easily leave the country, to the degree it requires completely free investment from anybody, anywhere, anyplace into their own nation, yeah. uh, to the degree it requires them no longer trying to peg effectively the Juan to the dollar, even if it's done more informally now than it used to be done, still doing it. Uh, and rather than just letting it randomly float, R the R Russia doesn't seem to be, and none of these countries seem to be interested in Triffin's dilemma. The problem being that if your currency is the global currency, all of a sudden your domestic economic interest might be put in conflict. For example, what if you want to protect your own domestic manufacturing like mm. China does? The problem with making your currency the global mm. currency is all of a sudden your goods can become more expensive, their goods cheaper in your own markets, and all of a sudden you lose that mercantile edge that could hollow out your manufacturing base yeah. as it did to the UK after their uh, reserve currency was replaced by the US and after it was done to the US after the US shifted trade mm. from uh, manufacturing sourcing from the United States to the global south, especially China. So it's not that everybody wants to be the actual reserve yes. currency. What's interesting is this theory being proposed by someone by the name of Jeff Snyder. So along loosely with Brent Johnson, who has something called the dollar mm. milkshake. But Jeff Snyder's theory is that, in fact, the U.S. dollar in the sense of the Fed issued dollar is not actually the world's reserve currency, but instead something that is loosely called the euro dollar system is. Now, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer because it's not the euro and it's not the European use of the dollar that define. That's where it originated the term, but it's not what it means in its current term. Basically, what he suggests is that beginning in the 1950s, private banks around the globe issued their own currency and they called it the U.S. dollar. But that these are not dollars that have ever been printed by the Federal Reserve. These are not dollars that ever came from or originated from the United States. And that the United States politicians and political class have often struggled to even understand this. You can see this in internal notes by the Fed and various policies, but that basically the mythology that the dollar was, the U.S. dollar was the reserve currency backed by gold and then by oil is mostly mythology under his theory. His theory is that effectively private banks around the globe hijacked the monetary system and now control it. And that the U.S. went along with it by the 70s and 80s when they figured out the scale at which it was happening because it solved Triffin's dilemma for them. And they no longer had to worry about balance of payment issues creating a conflict between domestic and global needs because private banks were issuing their own currency just denominated in dollars but not coming from the U.S. dollar base itself. And that was fine while it provided global liquidity and made it easy for U.S. and Western corporations to do business in foreign places and resource their labor from Europe and the United States to the global south. But it became a problem when for any reason they got nervous and people didn't trust each other because this is solely it's a very opaque system. It's a bank privilege system. So we often it's a black box system. So we often have no idea what's really going on. Even the central banks don't really know fully what's going on. The consequence of which is that if confidence collapses at any time in the system, the engine stalls or completely stops. And that to a certain degree, that's what happened in August of 2007. The foundation was cracked. And even though it showed up in the load-bearing power wall that brought down the house, known as the subprime mortgage uh, system in the load-bearing uh, load wall, it was because the foundation itself in the euro-dollar system was cracked. Euro-dollar just meaning 
private bank issued money from outside the United States denominated in dollars. And so, and that since then, they've, they have really atrophied and clawed it up. And that we've had a constant global dollar shortage problem that just constant, that just sporadically pop perks up. So sometimes it may show up in a European sovereign debt crisis in 2009, 2010, which has never been fully explained politically as to how that happened. Uh, it, it's, you know, it was blamed on the countries themselves. When you dig deeper, that doesn't really make as much sense as they originally portray. It's like the labor force participation problem in the United States. They claim it's because Americans suddenly got lazy overnight. No, it's probably because the demanufacturing of the American economy distressed and depressed whole populations in ways that disabled them psychologically from participating in an economy that no longer welcomed them in a society that had rejected them. Uh, it's the core base of the Trump vote, by the way, is people who dropped out of the economy and mostly dropped out of politics, except for when Trump's on the ballot. That's why the Democrats want to get rid of him. Uh, get rid of Trump, they get rid of the risk that uh, they vote Republican down ballot, those Trump voters that only vote when Trump's on the ballot. It's the double whammy of a Trump campaign in 2024. But so, uh, so the, 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 and, and in steps Jeff Snyder with this Euro Snyder, uh, with the Euro dollar explanation. And his explanation is that this is a out of control banking system being privileged by global private banks and financial institutions that since August 2007 don't fully trust each other enough. So they require more and more pristine collateral. They shrunk the growth rate of their balance sheet. And the consequence of that has been basically a global stalling in, in the economic development. You see the repo market and the derivatives market rise with world GDP from 2000 to 2008. And then the repo market kind of flatlines. Derivatives kind of flatlines, but not world GDP. How did they replace it? Debt. Because what happens after 2008 is all of a sudden uh, the dollar gets real cheap, goes down to about 80 bucks on the DXY at various points. Interest rates go way down. And all of a sudden, if, if, if you're a foreign nation, you can get people to invest in your sovereign debt by not denominating it in your local currency, but denominating it in US dollars, which right now are cheap and have low interest rates. Problem? All of a sudden, you're trying to prop up an economy no longer being serviced by the euro dollar system and, and by with debt. And what happens when the debt comes due? What happens when the dollar goes up? What happens when interest rates go up? You all of a sudden collapse the entire global economy because you've got private corporations. We've had debt explode, not only amongst governments right in the United States, but all around the world. Now, not Russia, by the way. Putin's like the only exception to all of this. Uh, in many respects, only one that's meaningfully divorced from the dollar in the reserves terms and domestic economy terms, only one that divorced from the ruble. He doesn't care what the ruble exchange rate is because very little of their economy is dependent upon imported goods and other currencies. Uh, in fact, the lower ruble can actually make his country's products more competitive around the world in external markets. Um uh, he's he's a guy that's been running balanced budgets, not 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 been running massive deficits, not been he's been decreasing their debt, not increasing their debt. But he's an exception. Everybody else debt through the roof and a lot of that debt denominated in dollars. And it's not just government, not just governments, local, federal, regional, national. It's also corporations uh, right in the United States. We got a bunch of zombie corporations, as they're called, with massive debt. Same thing's been happening around the globe. And a lot of that debt is denominated in dollars. That's why you have recognition by the global South that with the political weaponization of the dollar, even though it's being done by the U.S. to impact the euro dollar system that isn't quite controlled by the U.S., but they can try to politically weaponize it as much as possible just because it's labeled the dollar, denominated the dollar, they all want to divorce from it. The problem is they don't know how to replace it. 
uh, because they, they don't want to go through the sacrifices they go through with having a real reserve currency. Number one. Number two, it's it's a euro dollar system. It's not quite the U.S. dollar system. It's not it's not like it came from the Federal Reserve. This is just uh, money circulating because somebody in Brazil and somebody in South Africa did a deal and said, let's just let's denominate this in dollars to make it simple to streamline it. And that's why it's so hard for the one, the ruble, uh, the rupee, any, uh, the lira for anything to compete with it because it's not as simple and easy as the euro dollar system that the whole global financial market and the ordinary consumer, particularly in the corporate world, has adopted in mass. And so I think I was curious when this week you saw mainstream media highlight China is replacing the reserve currency. I'm like, well, one, I know that they inter internally, as Jerome Powell admitted, don't believe that. They don't believe anybody can compete with the dollar. Now, I think they're mistaken about what's going on. But putting that aside, I agree for different reasons. I think the euro dollar system is not easy to replace because of how it's uniquely developed and its unique public adoption and networking effect. And because China and nobody wants the burdens of a reserve currency. They would like the benefits, just not the burdens. Everybody wants the benefits, not the burdens. But they don't know how to do this in a way that doesn't cause more problems than benefits. But I think uh, it's so it's why is mainstream media suddenly hyping up China's replacing the dollar. China's replacing the dollar. China's replacing the dollar. When I don't think that's really happening at the moment. Uh, even though I have friends on the left and the right from a, even a Keynesian or Straussian perspective who think that's happening. I don't for the reasons I articulated. But my theory as to why the mainstream media is suddenly hyping it is they're trying to hype military conflict with China. They're trying to say, see, China is such a threat that they're going to replace the U.S. dollar. They're going to use the yuan. Xi was down in Saudi Arabia talking about a central bank digital currency shared amongst multiple central banks to be the new global currency. So see, this is what's happening. China is a meaningful threat. We have to respond with military power. That's why Bloomberg is suddenly, in my view, exaggerating the risk the yuan face presents to the dollar. It's also not clear to me that always beneficial to America to have the reserve currency uh, because it creates this. And you can't have a strong dollar without hurting the globe. But if by a strong, uh, but and, and a strong dollar also undermines your domestic trade, your international trade. I mean, our, our manufacturing base is hollowed out. So it's not always, I get the idea that you can more liberally fund your debt. You can have a more generous lifestyle because you can buy products cheaper around the globe. But there's some real downsides that have come with that uh, going all the way back to Triffin's dilemma. How much that's even really happening, given the euro dollar is another debate. But at a minimum, I think people are overreacting and taking the bait on the one replacing the dollar, because this is not in New York Times. This is not on CNN. This is not at CNBC. This is not at Bloomberg, because they're really worried about the financial system, because they want a political excuse to escalate military conflict in China, even though that's, as Colonel uh, as McGregor has explained, is insane. Uh, I, I think Trump's position has always been right. We have, you know, economic job needs that we need to work out in our trade policy with China, uh, not military conflict with China. I think that's insane. But I think that's the background. What's fascinating is that context makes more sense to me when I understand Jeff Snyder's euro dollar thesis. Yeah. And I see almost nobody discussing it. I wanted to see what you guys initial well, thoughts were about. Well, this is extremely interesting. Now, I mean, I haven't read Jeff Snyder's book. I can remember, again, my memory extends that far back. I can remember the 1960s and 1970s. We used to talk about the euro dollar all the time. It was big news in those days. And some 
time around 1980 we stopped talking about it. It was very strange. I haven't heard anybody use the expression euro dollar for ages and ages. I didn't even know it still existed, actually. So, I mean, it's very interesting to know, to, to hear all of that and to have all that explained in that kind of a way. Uh, I'm going to just make a few quick observations. I think that in the short term, having a reserve currency like the British pound sterling um, or the dollar, very, very attractive. If you go and read, you know, J uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes, one of, one of his books, he describes how comfortable life was for a wealthy person in London in about 1910, how they could order things from all around the world. It was incredibly easy. It would all come in, paid in sterling. Um, but of course, it atrophies, it destroys, it hollows out over time your economic base. And this has now been discussed many, many times. That's what's happened. That's what happened to Britain. We've never really recovered. It's what's also been happening to the United States. The US is a different society. It's differently organized from Imperial Britain. It has, uh, uh, it was always a more, it's, I know people think of Britain as, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution at this. But in fact, the US was always, in my opinion, ultimately the more industrially minded country. So there's a bigger industrial core in the United States to wither away than there was in Britain. And I don't think it's all completely gone, at least not yet. But it's not good for you. It's like a drug. In the short term, it makes you feel great. Over time, it weakens you. And that's what it's done. And I always get people coming along and tell, telling me, well, you know, if the dollar loses reserve status, all these dollars will go to the United States and that will set up a huge inflationary explosion and all that kind of thing. And that will destabilize the U.S. economy. They might cause some inflation, but I think the U.S. would absorb it. I think the U.S. would quickly recover. I think a lot of the latent strengths in the U.S. economic system, which do not exist in Britain, would come into play very quickly. And I think the U.S. would be better off. So I don't think the reserve currency status of the dollar benefits the U.S. or at least the people, the 80, 90 percent of the people in the U.S., who are not part of this, you know, political class at the top. I don't think it benefits them at all. It explains why there aren't the manufacturing jobs, why there's so many problems in the US of, you know, people not working. Well, it's all connected. All of these things connect with each other. So I, I think that for the United States, ending this, you know, problem, this this thing, this reserve currency states, I think it would be an unmitigated benefit. There'd be a few years of turbulence. Everything would then settle down. Things would be better. Now, how it works, how exactly it works, where the actual engine room is. Well, if the Fed doesn't understand it, don't expect me to. I am not able to, you know, I'm not going to go into the, you know, the inner workings of the system. Um and, you know, I, I'd be very interested to read Jeff Snyder's take. I'd be very interested to see how it would work. I don't think the Chinese have any intention of making the yuan a substitute, a replacement for the dollar for exactly the reason that you said. I think to the extent that they've been talking about a new reserve currency, 
the idea is an artificial currency functioning via the BRICS bank, which is very like, again, going back to Keynes, an idea that Keynes had way back in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference. He did not want the dollar to be the world's reserve currency. He understood what the problems long term of that might be. He wanted the IMF to work as a kind of bank and it would produce a currency which would be the world's reserve currency. It's something that never happened. The um, US government at the, at the time didn't want it that way and it never actually happened. But I get the sense that to some extent, that's what the Chinese want to return to. If the, China, if the Russians are using the yuan at the moment, it's because they have particular needs to use the yuan at the moment because, well, to be straightforward about it, they're in the middle of a geopolitical clash with the West. So they want to work with the Chinese and it makes sense for them to hold large amounts of yuan. It is not reproducible around the world. So I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, I, I don't think it is a danger, but the fact that there are some people who are looking for conflict with China, of that there's no question at all. The fact that they might be using the fact that the US dollar system does seem to be losing some ground as an excuse to pitch for a war with China. I could believe that completely. I think this is a misguided fear for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, because as you rightly say, Robert, it's not actually a benefit to the United States. The yuan isn't going to be the currency that's going to replace the dollar in the end anyway. And it's madness to seek war of any kind, and certainly not with a nuclear superpower like China with a bigger industrial base than your own. So I think that's I, I think that's entirely right. I'll be very interested to see how it works out, but I definitely need to read Jeff Snyder's book because as I said, I, I mean I I'm I'd be very interested to see exactly how he explains it because I, I wasn't aware of this book and I'd be very, very interested to know more about it. Yeah, a fascinating guy. I was introduced yeah. to him by a friend of mine, George Gammon. He's done a deep dive, historical. I find it particularly useful because the yeah. euro dollar explanation yeah. both has great explanatory power for the past, has, yeah. has I found it had great predictive utility for yes. the near short term, and it presents a filter that makes the most sense. And it's why everybody's trying to figure out how exactly do we, we replace this system and who do we want to replace the system and, yes. and, and the rest. Now, I think there is this relates transitions to another topic, uh, the last topic of tonight or today here in, in the States, the uh, is that uh, the the one potential alternative to the super chat question is some sort of digital currency, uh, yeah. a central bank digital currency. Mm. And while I think a lot of the Western efforts to create their own central bank digital currency was derailed by the political mm. weaponization of their financial system against Russia, terrifying the entire rest of the globe, including yeah. dissidents in their own country, from ever trusting that kind of system that, that you know, uh, I don't want to have my ability to pay for food transportation, hotel, uh, housing, utilities, electricity, and water 
depending on whether I've met my social credit score today, yes. according to some IRS official on my digital credit system. Uh, yeah, there, there's not much interest in that. Uh, no. Even DeSantis has come out attacking central bank digital currency system. So I think that has backfired. But what they might try to replace it with is what you just talked about, an independent central bank system from yeah. uh, an independent organization like the International Monetary Fund. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, some of my friends on the left have a different phrase for that MF part of International Monetary Fund. But I'll let yeah. that uh, to, the, to the folks at home to, to figure that one out. Uh, as Rush Limbaugh used to say, here's some time from adult beverages in adult language. Uh, but the uh, so, uh, but what's a competitor to all of this? Like you, you think about we basically mm -hmm. had the whole reason why the euro dollar was created is because you no longer needed a printed piece of paper. Yeah. So the printed piece of paper could only be issued by the United States government, by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. But with the emergence of digital technologies in the 1940s and 1950s, they realized in Europe and the, and the whole globe over time, we don't need a paper dollar. We, our bank, can just say, we'll loan you money and we'll call it dollars. Boom. Because it's all electronic anyway. Increasingly, that's what everything is. Just little bits and numbers. It's a quote from Ben Kingsley's character in the movie Sneakers. Great film, by the way. Good utility to how to dodge a phone call. So how to uh, jurisdictionally diversify your assets in that movie. But that's another story for another day. But so what's a competitor to all of this? Well, crypto, Bitcoin, alternative digital currencies. It's probably not a coincidence that the banks they're allowing to collapse in the United States are directly tied to the crypto industry. It's not a coincidence that they uh, that they you know let FTX develop, let Sam Bankman-Fried be a big star, then turn around and indict him, because they're using his entire case on the front and on the backside to be an example as to why it is you have to limit crypto. It's not a coincidence that at the same time that these other events are happening, they're suddenly accusing the crypto space of criminal fraud. They're suddenly uh, uh, targeting mm. crypto-connected banks. That they're also mm. Uh, trying to tax crypto on the IRS side and escalating tax authority investigations and inquiries. But not only that, the SEC going after library, going after Ripple, going after others mm -hmm. in the crypto space on the grounds mm -hmm. they were selling unregistered securities, even going after YouTubers who merely talk about it. They're being greenlighted to sue in the FTX context as co-conspirators and as promoting an unregistered security. They're being also targeted by the SEC. The SEC is opening up civil and criminal investigations into any YouTube person who merely talked about certain crypto tokens on the allegation that somehow they were promoting them and were an unregistered promoter under the SEC rules. The reason, there's probably a reason for this, as Kim Iverson has talked about, Operation Chokepoint. This is a coordinated plan to take out crypto. You know, it's not a coincidence that in December you have Chase CEO Jamie Dimon going out there saying, why do we even let crypto exist? Now, it's kind of ironic because as a bank, all he is is really a bookkeeper, digital bookkeeper. He's a poor version of the blockchain. He's, he, he, he's a, a less transparent version of, of digital currency. That's what the euro dollar system is. It's a, it's a digital currency that's, less that's more opaque, less transparent. You don't know what the rules are. The rules can change. They have, all the benef they have none of the benefits and all the burdens of a digital currency all the limitations and none of the enhancements. And so it, you expect to see a continued Western war on the, on, uh, you could even say China was partially complicit in this and trying to shut down Bitcoin mining operations a couple of years ago in their country where it was the number one source of Bitcoin mining. They've gone back and forth on aspects of that. But I think there's all of the governments, I think, fear 
crypto as an alternative medium of exchange, particularly Bitcoin, that could displace their government-ordered fiat currency systems that give them so much political power over their own population. And especially if they want a digital global currency to replace it, they need to make sure Bitcoin is not that digital global currency. Yeah. They need to make sure other blockchain-based technologies are not that competition because that they can't control, even though it serves all the purposes, at least theoretically, of a, and I understand all the limitations, all the issues, liquidity issues, elasticity issues, timeliness issues, network adoption mm -hmm. issues. I get all the criticisms of it, but it also serves the benefit of you have transparency because of the nature of the blockchain. You you know what the rules are, and they can't change because of the nature of the blockchain. Uh, and you have universal access if you merely have a phone or a computer or access to the internet. So in a certain respect, it achieves a lot of things that are better than what the euro dollar digital currency does or what a central bank digital currency can do. So expect continued political lawfare, weaponizing mm -hmm. the law against crypto and, and, and the crypto coin space, crypto coin participants. I mean, Signature Bank, it wasn't even clear they were really underwater ahead problems. Silicon Valley Bank could have easily been bailed out by any other bank yeah. or the Fed or by, or by going to the repo market. They didn't. This is a sign of a coordinated attack. They knew Sam Bankman-Fried was a crime criminal while they were promoting him and he was donating to their campaigns. Mm. This is appears to be politically motivated. The, the attacks on Library are outrageous. The attacks on Ripple are almost as, as outrageous. Mm. These are uh, uh, This is a war on crypto because I think they want to replace the euro dollar system with a system that mm. they still control. Yeah, that makes, that makes complete sense, actually. It makes complete sense. Gosh. We haven't so even been, talked... Uh, it's been a fun time. Of the when, Now, what do you guys think? Because I haven't got, haven't got your uh, uh, latest update in terms of uh, Ukraine. And I was, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say... They're we actually have, burning churches well, there. They're, they're well, kicking well, out priests uh, and burning churches I, in Ukraine. Yeah, yes. I, I was actually curious what uh, what you think, Robert. What do you... What's... What is the Biden White House's plan? What do you think they're they're mm -hmm. aiming for? What, what do you think's going on with Poland? What uh, I, I think the concern is that it's it's a limitless. What's Biden's world. angle? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we kind of have an idiot emperor. You know, not only is he yeah. naked, he's not very bright, and everybody around him is the same. Yeah, uh, I mean, I've seen Sullivan, all these people. Yeah, yeah. Completely. It's it's like I mean, it, it's I don't know what their exit strategy is on Ukraine. No. I mean, China was starting to step in. Ukraine's part of their Rotten Belt initiative. In fact, that's a critical part of it for access to Europe. The whole goal is to not to have to rely on the seas for yeah. transport and storage. Well, a big part of those trains and pathways go right through China, I mean, right through from China, right through Ukraine. Um, having Ukraine in the middle of this doesn't help China. Um, if China stepped in and cut a sweetheart peace deal and gave uh, Zelensky a bigger golden parachute, you know, maybe they could get a peace deal. I mean, I think that was no. the best or it still probably is the best chance for a non-military resolution of this, because I never understood the logic. I mean, as you pointed out, uh, Alex, you know, the why, why does some people may wonder, why does manufacturing capacity matter in a military conflict? Well, ask uh, Hitler uh, about how that mattered to the U.S. He assumed the U.S. could not build the number of ships in the time it built it, the number of tanks and the number amount of ammunition. Mm -hmm. But when you have a huge manufacturing engine, you can turn that on quick. And all of a yeah. sudden, boom, you can have everything you need fast. Uh, Russia's proven that. I yeah. mean, I mean, well, Russia was supposed to run out of ammunition six months ago, right? 
you know, they don't seem to have any problem with it. It's Ukrainians yeah. always complaining about lack of ammunition. Yeah. So I've never, I agree with McGregor. Uh, I never saw, I agree with Ritter. I never saw any conclusion other than Russian military victory, at least in the eastern part of Ukraine. I also never saw uh, Putin going west of the Nipa River. Uh, I didn't see him wanting to have a region under control that hated him. Uh, mm. That, you know, there's the, the lesson Ukraine should have learned from trying to conquer the Donbass. I think Putin learned well enough from everything, how he maneuvered and, and massaged the Chechen conflict later on, not to repeat that mistake of getting involved like Afghanistan in Western Ukraine, where they hate yeah. him, uh, where they've hated Russians for centuries, where they think they're the only real descendants of the Rus Empire from its origins. That's why they called themselves Ruthenian. When they came to America, Ukrainian nationalists didn't call themselves Ukrainian nationalists. They called themselves Ruthenian nationalists like they were for about 400 years when they were aligned with Poland. Um, and then you've got Poland doing whatever nonsense it's doing. I think McGregor is right. There's a bunch of generals that really think if we get involved directly with boots on the ground in an official formal way that we will win and beat Russia and then we'll turn around and beat China, use our military power to show we run the world. Um, there's a bunch of people who really they're like the the going back to the Kennedy conversation, they're like bombs away LeMay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, LeMay wanted to nuke everybody. I mean, again, George Corley Wallace had to keep apologizing for LeMay in 1968. That's how bad it was. It's like, no, he didn't really mean we should have a first <laughs> nuclear strike. Yes, he did. He thought Kennedy was a wuss because he didn't do a nuclear strike. He's like, hey, we, we beat the Ruskies. I mean, these characters are real characters in Dr. Strangelove. Those yeah. are real generals, different generals he put in that room by the genius of Stanley Kubrick. He, yeah. he found a sardonic way to deal with the moral horror of who was actually in positions of power in the U.S. military. We really have those people. So I have no doubts about that. Now, on the right, you're seeing continued weakness uh, and cracking on the Ukraine war support base. Fewer and fewer willing to stake their credibility on it. Fewer and fewer willing to go out on a limb for it. And more aggressivity from the anti-Ukraine side. I mean, for the first time, we had a real vote on Syria. And you got 50 Republicans or so joining, you know, a bunch of Democrats on questioning what took place. So you saw the first cross-party anti-war political coalition formed in decades on the congressional floor, led by Matt Gates. So we expect that to continue. Trump, of course, his rhetoric has been stronger and stronger and stronger about mm -hmm. there needs to be no war. Deep state needs to be taken out. The, I, I'd solve this war tomorrow. Uh, he would because he'd go in and say no more aid to Ukraine. Screw it. Give this back away. Go mm -hmm. home and sit down. Um, he hasn't forgot that Zelensky betrayed mm -hmm. him in the impeachment proceedings. Mm -hmm. Trump's got a list and he's keeping he's checking it twice. So the uh, so I think if Trump gets in, if Robert Kennedy gets in, the war will end. Uh, the question is, what will happen between now and then? Do they get us involved in a war in China somehow? Uh, you know, that, that the, the, these people have shown with the Trump indictment and the Ukrainian conflict with the North, North Stream uh, as an example, they have no limits. And people mm. that are ego-driven, power-mad, and have no limits are the most dangerous people to have in Yes, power. yes, yes. I completely agree with that. I have to say, this is, we are close, it seems to me, in Ukraine to an outcome, a military outcome. This is what I think. This is what McGregor thinks. I think most people who've been looking at this can see this. We now have this talk about this Ukrainian offensive. This talk about it's going to be the last ditch offensive. Um, if it fails, Ukraine loses. If it succeeds, 
what does succeed even mean in this context? Probably the destruction of more of the Ukrainian army. They might get a bit of territory. They will lose it afterwards. And then again, the war ends. How does the administration cope with that? What do they do when that happens? I mean, this is this is what um, I, I don't understand. I mean, surely there are. I mean, I have no doubt that there are actually some people who seem to be trying to explain all of this to the administration. I get the impression that sometimes, uh, even Mark Milley, you know, in the sort of dark watches of the night, he wakes up, he says to himself, this isn't working out at all in the way it was expected to. Um, he sometimes, you know, gives these murmuring comments about, well, you know, it's not actually going to happen quite the way people think. Is there anybody who's able to somehow get through this wall that seems to have been built around the White House, the old man in the Oval Office, and say to him, you know, Joe, <laughs> this isn't working. Time to pick up the phone to Putin or C or whomever, or Zelensky, in fact, and say, you know, make peace. Because, you know, better make peace now than have peace imposed on you, a peace imposed by the other side, which might not be in your interest. I mean, is there anybody who says this? I mean, I is think any... aside from like military reality on the ground, as you're talking about, that's undeniable mm. military results yeah. on the ground. Yeah. I think the only other thing that would get Biden's attention is a combination of Trump surging and Robert Kennedy surging. Because Robert Kennedy's also running in opposition to the Ukrainian conflict. He's been opposed to it from the very beginning. Now, he had one of his own sons who so strongly disagreed with him, he went over to Ukraine without telling his father. Um, you know, so he had to deal with that in a firsthand way, but he's been harshly critical of the Ukrainian conflict and called it a, a deep straight back war that we should have no involvement or engagement in. So if the only thing that would get Biden's attention is if his, if the, is if war critics are surging in public opinion yeah. against him beyond actual undisputable, undeniable military results on the ground. Which, as you noted, you know, the McGregor, Ritter, others have all forecast for the most part that, you know, Ukraine's on the clock and may not be able to last the summer uh, in term because Russia, again, has only used a small portion of its military capacity and uh, including all the soldiers it brought up and uh, br brought in. They mostly haven't gone to the front lines at all yet. No. Uh, what happens when they do? I mean, it all looks like they have a strategic conflict over Bakhmut that they believe once they control Bakhmut, then they're going to launch against the rest of the Ukrainian forces in such a way that would likely devastate them. You also assume there's got to be meaningful internal dissent in Ukraine that's just been suppressed by no press rights, no speech rights. You get arrested or maybe even killed if you go out and attack it if you're inside Ukrainian controlled mm -hmm. territory. But you got to assume that con that political disagreement with this is escalating. Their economy is collapsing because the last thing that may come about related to all of this is I think there's almost no doubt we're heading to a deep recession by the end of 2023. Almost everything in the United States points to it. Uh, the labor force participation rate, the, uh, the, the survey of manufacturers, what's going on in construction, the inversion of the bonds. The entire bond market has been screaming for a year that uh, we're going to be going into recession. The beginning fractures of the banking problems with the, the global financial euro dollar system, uh, you know, not you know, constantly crunching up. 
I mean, it took out not only Signature Valley Bank and Signature Bank, uh, uh, it also took out Credit Suisse, you know, one of the great all-time European banks. Mm-hmm. You've got issues in Japan. You've got issues in Germany. The Chinese reopening hasn't triggered a global refurbishing like people thought it would. That's because China's got its own debt problems. China's got its own real estate problems. It can't yeah. quite figure out how to manage. Created this massive real estate bubble, but that real estate bubble is 30% of its economy when you include everybody employed in the uh, related to it, 30% of its GDP. How do you just yeah. how do you slow down that problem without lots yeah. of pain? Um, and they're still rebounding from the zero COVID policy. And they're all doing this while they're trying to figure out a way to get around the euro dollar without an adequate replacement. Yeah. So you add that up, you got probably a global recession coming. Yeah. And that global recession is probably going to hurt worse in a lot of other countries around the world that might have their own rebellions. You know, you've had the Ethiopian civil war that's mostly not been covered in the West, that it yeah. continues to percolate. What happens if those kind of conflicts spread around the globe and we see a bunch of little Lebanons, a bunch of Sri Lankas, a bunch of tiger uh, crises, a bunch of pigs crises, but in all kinds of nations all around the world, because you combine the euro dollar system with the Ukrainian conflict and the idiotic sanctions against them, put them together and you have the recipe for a global economic disaster, especially after all the crazy monetary experiments we went through during the pandemic where we decided let's artificially inflate demand with these stimulus checks and massive government spending but we're also going to artificially reduce supply. Then that creates a whipsaw effect because all of a sudden when the demand runs out and the supply overstacked, thinking that demand was going to keep going, all of a sudden they got to dump inventory at cheap places and lay off employees. You start aggregating this with the underlying financial system problems we've never solved globally, including the United States, with a sovereign debt crisis to boot. And you've got the recipe for some massive, for the biggest global unraveling since World War One and World War Two, and and the people we have running the show are the same kind of people who are running the Austro-Hungarian, Turkish, <laughs> British, and German empires right before mm. World War One. And what happened to them? They're all gone mm. by the end of the in five years. Uh, you know, British Empire shrunk. Austro-Hungarian six centuries gone. Russian Empire four centuries gone. Uh, French Empire of the the time dramatically shrunk. Kaiser out the door pretty quickly. The German Empire dramatically shrunk, uh, ultimately replaced by the Bilmar Republic. So, you know, we could easily, the Turk, I mean, uh, look how long the Ottoman Empire had been there. The Ottoman Empire was massive. And the net effect of it, Ottoman Empire was gone at the end of World War I. So um, I just hope we don't have to go through the kind of pain we went through in the 19-teens and 20s to get there. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. (laughs) It's been a fantastic show. You got your own moment, Alex. You got the remember the TV moment? Yes. I got the little one. There you go. Little little, little, little. (laughs) Okay, my last. Yeah. Yeah, for the little one's sake and everybody else's sake, let's hope somebody sane somewhere along the line saves us from our self-destruction of our corrupt, incompetent elites. Exactly. I completely. Well said, Robert. That that right there is 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 the big problem. Yes. Yes. people that are running the show yes what do you guys say wrap it up let's Sounds wrap good. it up yes that was epic Please. yes that was epic. epic great robert barnes where can people find you they can find all the content where all the a lot of the great content comes from our members of the board because like well like uh, like well and garrison keeler everybody's above average at vivabarneslaw.locals.com there will be a link in the description box down below and as a pinned comment as well. Thank you very, very much. The great Robert Barnes. Thank you, Alexander McCurse. Thank you to all our moderators. 
Have a great day, morning, evening, wherever you are in the world. Take care.